Hey everybody, Patrick here. Um, before we start the show, I wanted to put the word out about a project I'm doing to raise money for local food banks. I'm currently taking a request to review movies on my letterbox, so if there's a sp- specific movie that you always wanted me to see and review, you know, here's your chance. All you have to do is donate $10 to a local food bank and then email me proof at tracksofthedamned at gmail.com. And if you want to request multiple reviews, uh, you just donate $10 for each. I you know I can't see every movie you know I'm probably not going to be able to review the day the clown cried anytime soon but if it's on Netflix or Hulu or Prime or Shutter or you know part of my huge DVD collection I can review it and uh, if it isn't we can probably still work out a way for me to review it because you know most stuff's streaming digitally anyway right anyway uh, check out the show notes for this episode or check out my letterboxd at letterboxd.com/patrickrapole for more details. Uh, I'm going to keep a running list of all the requests there, along with more details on uh, how to do all this. So let's do it. Let's raise some money and uh, give our help to people who need it. Okay, enough of that. Uh, Let's get on with the show. Gentlemen and those who do not believe in a gender binary, welcome back to Directors Club Podcast. I almost said Tracks of the Dam because for some reason I've been doing that show again. But instead, I'm here. It's Directors Club Podcast. We're here to talk about directors. We're not here to talk about Lucio Fulci gouging people's eyeballs out. Um, though, I have to admit, I did watch The Beyond recently and I was thinking, what if, <laughs> what if Mike Lee made an Italian horror movie? I think that would be very funny. Um... But uh, I am joined, of course, by Jim. How are you doing, Jim? Oh, my gosh. I'm here, and I'm very, very excited. Um, despite the fact that I was really happy that we got this podcast going again so we can get back together and be in the same yeah. room and hang out. Exactly. Uh, yeah, what a, what a great excuse to, to just... To just and, then, and then look what happens. To socialize. Without all this distance, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, and then now it's quarantine cast, mm-hmm. but uh, we'll make the best of it. We're recording in our separate living rooms. We'll make um, the best of it. It's probably not quite up to the audio quality, at least on my end, that you're used to from the previous podcast, but I think we're going to do all right. Uh, how do you find yourself filling your days, Jim? Right now I'm in my bedroom with no pants. Yeah. Yeah, you know it. It feels it feels all right because mm-hmm. I'm I'm doing my best to fill my time with projects and uh, some reading and some movie viewing. I'm uh, really excited for our next director next month. I actually picked up a copy of a of a Billy Wilder book. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm doing okay ish. But obviously, I, I do have worries and concerns for the world, and uh, particularly hoping and praying that uh, my sister has a speedy recovery, because she was um, unfortunately stricken with the virus due to her working 
you know, pretty for a lot of hours at a hospital with with people who undoubtedly had the virus and not not everybody knew at the time, but uh you know, her symptoms are 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 not the best, but she's in good spirits. She's really pulling through okay on her own. And uh all we got to do is just hope and wait that uh you know, things go well. How how is uh how long has it been for her? Um she's it's been about a week and the doctors are just saying you know, we'll we'll check back in a week to see how you are, to see if your symptoms have improved and whatnot. But um, it's probably going to be two weeks. Like that's the normal time for yeah. hunkering down and quarantining. So uh, yeah, you know, she's got her puppies, she's got HBO, and she's got lots of medicine, and you know, she's doing her best, and she's certainly monitoring her symptoms. Just uh, you know, just to you know, like like the rest of us, we're just you know, just, just hanging out and. You know, uh, social distancing and all that stuff, and that's that's all we can do. Sure. Well, you know, I, I, we're we're all hoping uh, for the best. Yeah. Um, couple of quick things up top. I was recently a guest on Christmas Movies Actually to talk about the superb bank heist thriller, The Silent Partner, with uh, Elliot Gould and Christopher Plummer. That's of course up at NowPlayingNetwork.net. Uh, and soon enough, an episode of Still Watching the Skies with Nat, Robert, and Cody will be released, in which I reveal my top ten favorite films of the 2010s. So, uh, oh, pretty good. Yeah. You might want to go to wherethelongtailends.com and subscribe to that fun show and support the work of those goofballs, since uh, it, was, it was a real honor to be on. It was a lot of fun, and there's some big surprises that we all react to. All right. All right. Let me get. Let me guess. Let me guess. Some uh, the master. Um, I don't think so. Really? No, no, no. I've become more of a fan of Inherent Vice myself. Really? Because you weren't that one. You were sort of uh, cool on, right? Yeah, but now I love it. I've seen it like six times. Yeah, that's my that's my favorite sort of latter day uh, PTA movie. Oh yeah, and since I've gotten into et- and since I've gotten into edibles, I like it even more. Sure, that that's very helpful. Yeah, for sure. You know, Patrick, I think we have a guest mm-hmm. for this episode, don't we? We do have a guest. We could keep going, though. Oh no! Just make them just make them sit here quietly for. <laughs> I, I've been trying so hard to be like professional and be quiet and not like react to what Jim mm-hmm. is saying because we haven't talked in a while, and usually I'm like a very like like vocal reaction person, so I'm just like like. Keeping shaking. it all, yeah, yeah, just like, 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 just, oh, just keeping it all Touching inside. Shaking. Yeah, you're practicing your active listening skills, and who is that? Okay. Yes, who is that? Our guest who is, is uh, Regina Lynn. Hi, uh, the uh, author of Panda Bear Shape. Would you call yourself an author? Blogger in exile. Blogger in exile of consistent Panda Bear Shape at, <laughs> at pandabearshape.com. Yeah, which is, which has been in, in stasis for. Uh, few years now but i mean please go please go back and read if you're interested yeah and and, and blog about uh, fat people in cinema of which there are more than a few in mikey films this is true in fact you did an article on secrets and lies i did (gasps) i I sure did so that was one of my first articles i will Um, link to it in the show notes oh thank you yeah and you're also you're also a you're also a great actor too oh thanks thank you uh, yeah, I, that's one of the reasons that I kind of stopped um, doing doing the blog is because you know you I, I wrote about 
uh, fat characters for a few years, and then I was like, you know what? I miss acting, and um, I want to be the fat character, so I, uh, I've been kind of putting my, my energy into uh, the Chicago theater scene in the past few years. Yay. So, yeah. Yeah, so that's what I've been up to. So, Regina, how are you coping? Oh! Staying at home. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, taking it one day at a time. I guess I'm still working um, um, remotely, uh, which is which is a blessing. Um, I, I work in social services, uh, and luckily I've got a, I have a, a laptop and a cell phone, so I'm able to to do that from the quote unquote comfort of uh, my kitchen table, and. Um, yeah, yeah, just trying to take that one day at a time. I mean, we haven't had any any disasters thus far, and it's been about three weeks. But you know, you gotta be prepared for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so just trying to you know take care of myself. And yep, uh, I, I was I was gonna gonna um, make a joke about how uh, the only reason I'm on the I'm on the podcast today is. Uh, because I usually go somewhere else when when y'all are recording, uh, but that's not true at all. Uh, I think I think when Patrick told me that the band was getting back together, I I don't remember if like the plan was for Mike Lee or if I was like, "Are you doing Mike Lee?" And can I be on a Mike Lee episode? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a really really. Uh, there like... was never going to be a Mike Lee episode without you. Oh really? Oh well, that's nice. Yeah, because <laughs> I I'm a huge fan. Um, so and and I guess uh, because Mike Lee's um, like his his sort of defining feature for a lot of folks is the the acting process, uh, and that's what I'm doing now. So. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm, <laughs> I'm excited to have your insight on that. Well, I'll try um, too. <laughs> Definitely, not me that too. You've done that method necessarily, but um, you at least sort of can speak to that kind of preparation and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I'll do my best, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've started Tracks of the Damned again. I guess that's my, uh, in some capacity or another, Tracks of the Damned was a show that I started in 2016 where I did uh, commentary tracks for horror films, and it was great. And then at some point, 2016 became extremely not great, and I said, I am too burnt out to do anything at all except stare at the wall and scream. So I kind of stopped it, and then I brought it back at some point in 2017, but it was still just horrible. Everything is horrible, um, as Medea would say. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I don't know why I said it like that. Everything everything was terrible or whatever, so I kind of put it on hiatus again because I don't have the emotional energy for it. And because it's a podcast that I put a lot of effort into, um, I do a lot of research. Every single episode... Uh, has, you know, behind it, you know, 50 to 100 hours of research and watching other movies and reading books and articles and putting stuff together and recording and re-recording and all that. So it was a thing I wasn't really prepared to do on that level. Um, But now that I'm at home all the time, I am doing it again, but I'm still not sort of doing it on that level. We're kind of doing it more laissez-faire. I'm not prepping quite as much. They're sort of uh, more free-flowing, loose commentary tracks, so... That is still happening, though, every week on Wednesday, so uh, check out uh, Tracks of the Damned at uh, Now Playing Network. Are you doing all the Friday the 13th movies? Yes, I am. Every other week, I'm doing a Friday the 13th movie. So, so far, uh, way back when for Director's Club for a Mother's Day episode, I did a commentary track for the first one. Yeah, that was um, good. 
And then, since then, I've also uploaded commentary tracks for parts two and three. And I'm even going to do the remake, which I am uh, kind of a fan of. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Jim is clearly a fan as well. Uh, I should watch it again. That's the sound of love. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, it's like it's a Platinum Dunes movie. You watch it, that's and you're probably like, yes, why. This is a Platinum Dunes remake, the way that the Text Chainsaw Massacre remakes a Platinum Dunes remake, and all those The Hitcher, all those Platinum Dunes remakes. But um, if you are a total dork who remembers all the details of every single movie, the way that it kind of chooses to remake not just the first film or the second film but sort of remake a whole series of films within it is uh, very interesting so yeah i'm sure it's better than jason goes to hell so right it's it's also like when i say i kind of like that movie i mean it is in the middle of a series that is mostly made of bad movies <laughs> true yes yeah. i mean it is better than jason takes manhattan um <laughs> and it's certainly better than the nightmare on elm street remake we can all agree even those of us who have seen neither. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. Yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street remake. It's <laughs> real bad. My first experience was uh, Freddy versus Jason with, with either of those franchises. Yes. So I, I feel like... And you were on the uh, commentary track with me for, yeah, uh, part, for part three. three. Yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of sarcastic, whoa, and there's like a 3D shticky. Uh, so prepare yourselves for that. Oh, I, yeah, I apologize. Oh, yeah, um, but uh, before we do that, we should talk about movies we saw this week that aren't really trashy 80s slashers. Uh, unless Jim has something up his sleeve that I'm not aware of. Uh, let's talk about what we watched this week. Mm, I like the sound of that. Rest in peace to Adam Schlesinger, John Prine, and Mr. Bill Withers. I saw Contagion and the Fall, Series 7, Margin Call. Midnight Run Pulse, she's the one. Undertow under the skin, something wild, lonesome Jim, Doctor Strange Love Images. What we watched this week. Did you see the long goodbye? What we watched this week. Binged on the wire. What we watched this week. I saw Castle in the Sky. We watch this week. Now let's get high and wash your hands. Wash those hands. Wash them. And stay at home. usually like to uh, start... Wait, actually, real quick. Jim, are you going to talk about a trashy 80s movie? No. Slasher? <laughs> no, I am not. Not at this time. Although, I gotta say, I'm grateful for your letterboxed review of uh, Slumber Party Massacre 2. Because that now, I'm a huge fan of that one. That movie's so good. It's the it's the weirdest thing. I love it. Yeah. And also, that was a movie I watched, and I said, oh, this is a Jim movie. I'm sure Jim has already seen this, because it's such a Jim movie. It made me think of, like, Blood Diner. Oh, Totally. Yeah, but um, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't seen it, and I, I appreciated its weird, like, detours and strange tone, and uh, yet it was very sincere and 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 funny at times. And then when when shit gets real, look out, Gore City. <laughs> yeah, it's uh that the first the first Slumber Party Massacre as well is a very strange. It, it's like it was conceived as a sort of feminist uh, response to slasher movies. And then when the studio sort of got a hold of it, they watered down that aspect of it a bit. But it's still there. Um, and the second movie is just as unusual and confrontational, just in a very different way. 
Yeah. Uh, both those movies are on Shudder, by the way. If anyone has Shudder out there, you should probably check out the uh, two Slumber Party Massacres. Oh, and also really um, quickly, if you're, yeah. if, if you're subscribing to Shudder, I just want to give a quick shout out to former guests and uh, podcasting legend Jay Cheel. I don't listen to too many podcasts, but it, in terms of film podcasts, the only ones I listen to regularly are uh, the Cinecast and the Directors Club podcast. Who uh, currently has a new documentary series on Shudder, and it's uh, become quite the success, and it's called Cursed Films. Um, I believe each episode is about a half an hour on a specific horror film and some of the uh, uh, urban legends, but also just some of the weird behind-the-scenes crazy things that happened on sets or even after the film was put out uh, for things like The Exorcist, Poltergeist, The Omen. Um, I know there's more episodes to come, but those are the first three that are now out and available. And I, I encourage everybody to check it out because uh, Jay Chiel's a pretty damn good filmmaker. I'm really excited about the episode on Tom Hooper's Cats. <laughs> the the most cursed of films. Yeah. I don't think that's happening, but th- there's some good stuff. Yeah. I watched the uh, first episode on The uh, Exorcist and I enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Um, but uh, for what we watch this week, we normally like to uh, start with the guest. Oh, no. Um, uh, Regina, what have you been watching recently? Huh. Other than Frasier. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> this is, this is going to tie in. Um, I watched, rewatched uh, Say Anything um, with John Mahoney. Uh, oh, that's right. Of, of Frasier fame. Um, I've also been watching like a lot of Frasier recently but that's that's neither here nor there um yeah so say anything um I'm, I'm sure most folks have seen it i remember i was in high school and um someone told me uh it was like i, I think it was like like the summer like i got like a copy of that movie like the summer between uh, my senior year of high school and college and someone was like this is when you have to watch this movie um, so I watched Say Anything for the first time the summer before I went off to college and it fucking destroyed me. Um, cause that is like exactly what that, what that movie's about. Um, you know, and, and I just remember like watching that movie one afternoon and then like spending the rest of the day just like on the couch in the living room crying really yeah i don't think of it as being that like devastating of a movie i mean i i think it was just the um the the like time in my in my life like i I was i mean i I wasn't like 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 how how diane is this you know like like one in a billion you know brilliant you know destined for greatness person and like i'm i'm definitely not that person but you know there was like a lot of um pressure put on me academically and you know i'm an only child so i guess i was kind of sheltered and just the thought of like i mean and, and it wasn't even going from like seattle to to england like like she is in the, i was just going from like upstate new york to new jersey which is like the two hour drive away but i was still like oh no i'm going away from home I'm terrified and you know you know breaking it with my high school boyfriend like it's pretty obvious that this is over um we're, we're still friends though um but but yeah it was just like there was a lot in that movie where it's like it like that just hit me in in that moment and just sort of like i don't know i don't know i, I think maybe i just picked up on like where there's like a lot of excitement but there's also a lot of like fear and uncertainty and a lot of that gets channeled into um like 
the the kind of bad timing for her mm-hmm. to meet Lloyd and um the uh the the whole issue with um with Diane's father um committing committing tax fraud and you know her her trust in in him who's like you know being completely destroyed so a lot of that does get funneled away from the whole like oh you're leaving home you're 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 growing up you're an adult now you're on your own but yeah that that kind of um at, at least like at the time i, I think that all just kind of became like one big thing that like really just sort of you know, it, it was like a good, like cathartic cry, but yeah. you know, still. Um, so then, so then, I was like, oh, you know, I'm 35 now. You know, I'm 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 a person of the world. So let, let's let's re- let's revisit this movie for the first time in in 17 years, and uh, I think it really holds up in a way that like not a lot of movies that I was like into at that point in my life um do yeah like um like i i think i think probably the the other reason that i saw it is because high fidelity was like my favorite movie at that time so i was like oh more john cusack um and i mean i don't i don't think that i still hold high fidelity in the same regard now like the last time i rewatched it i, I think i was just like oh you know he's it's no it's still a good movie but not but but say anything i i, I was still like like there were there were parts where i was just like still like pretty moved. I mean, obviously I didn't sit here and yeah. cry the whole night. Um, yeah, I just feel like I'm rambling. Jim, I hear it's, it's a, a movie that's very close to your heart as well. Oh, absolutely. I would say that um, Say Anything and Pump Up the Volume are two movies that uh, still hold up for me to this day and actually do move me uh, very much for, for different reasons. This one sort of, I felt, was kind of like um, the the best portrayal of being in a relationship at that age and yeah. and not but also trying to form your identity like i i i, I, ha- I remember like going to dinners with par- well you know having to talk to parents about what do you want to major in what do you want to be who do you want you know oh, like yeah. and like that whole speech he gives about i don't want to sell anything buy anything or process anything <laughs> it's just like yeah. i just i i felt really connected to, uh, still, I still feel that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally, totally, and uh, yeah, yeah, and especially like like the way that he has his, his little you know speech about kickboxing, and he has just like these very like like put together sort of comments about like oh it's the sport of the future, where it's like it's like you can tell that that he's had this conversation with many an adult, you know, yeah, and, and that like he's kind of used to being like you know dismissed. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's, that's, that's like what makes this movie so special to me. I mean, just besides the, the memories of it being so timely is, is just how, um, Diane and Lloyd are, um, just such better fleshed out and better realized characters than a lot of teen rom-com characters. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of times you, you kind of have these characters where I it's mean, even like... better, even adult rom-coms rarely... Well, yeah. No, but I guess, I guess I was just thinking like, um... Cause, cause we we tried to watch Riverdale, oh, <laughs> and, and I I think that that was like the contrast in my head is where it's like you just you just have these these like teenage characters who are just uh-huh. like way too mature and way too like cool for school, and sure. it's like when do you when, you're not sitting around reading Truman Capote, yeah, that's from the, uh, jingle jangle. That's and, more of the uh, uh, Kevin Williamson tradition, the Dawson's Creek uh, scream movie, yeah, sort of thing. yeah, and it's like it's like I guess there's like a certain charm to that but 
the, I mean, I mean, when I when I see a film like that, I also kind of feel like, oh, you were trying to get one over on me when I when I was mm-hmm. like sixteen. You you mm-hmm. were trying to like. Like, 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 push this image on me. And, and I don't feel that, like, like, Say Anything just has this vulnerability. I mean, especially compared to, like, John Hughes movies. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, I mean, especially John Hughes movies are a good counterpoint because I feel the thing a lot of teen movies actually do is they try to flatter their teen audience. Yes. They are very much about, like, this is romanticizing them too. Yeah, yes. well, not romanticizing them, but also like telling them this tale about how they're the cool person in their school, and whenever they feel lonely, that's because no one else can understand how cool they are. Right, and it's like the it's like the sort of a thing where it's just like it's a story about someone who is noticed all the clicks and isn't it weird that everyone has to act the same way but you don't do that because yeah. you're too you're you're above it all but you're so smart for observing all this and like yeah it's this thing that um it's just salesmanship it's a salesmanship as much as any other sort of film genre is where they are they don't really care about honesty they don't really think about what would move a teenage audience they're really just thinking about like what would make the teenage audience feel good um yeah and and, it's, it's, and say anything is so not interested in that at all it, ki- it kind of pulls a bait and switch almost because the the beginning with like the graduation and then the party like that big mm-hmm. crazy house party it, it kind of starts with that but then once like lloyd and diane find find each other and find that connection like all that's left behind well i mean even the how ha- i mean the bait and switch i feel happens at the party where like everyone is just like Oh my god, Diane, I'm so glad you came. Yeah. Like, she, like, realizes, she's reading her yearbook, she realizes, like, I've really left a lot of experiences on the table. Yeah. Um, There's a whole lot that I sort of sheltered myself away from that I shouldn't have. But it's not a scene where everyone is just like, what's that brain doing here? (laughs) Or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's like they have that conversation, like like, like that first scene where it's like, oh, Lloyd, you're not a brain. Diane's a brain. She's never going to go out with you. And then it's like, oh, that's not the case at all. Which is, that's the honest thing, is that, is that, yes, people can divide in terms of groups of people who are interested in the same thing or come from similar backgrounds or something like that. But, and they might think that that's the way certain people might think that's the way it has to be or whatever but in reality like the effort if you actually put effort in towards breaking that you'll realize it's all an illusion yeah and the, but it like that's not the movie's not just satisfied you know in a breakfast club way of just like saying and isn't and aren't they all really the same and that's the ultimate revelation. There's so much more there than just that. Yeah, yeah. I know that's I know we brought this point. up when we first reviewed it Patrick but uh I think when we first when we talked about it, I recontextualized my feelings about that um, you know, holding up the boombox scene because when yeah. I first saw it, I really did think of it as like, "Oh, isn't that sweet? That's so that's so thoughtful of him to do that." And now it's well, more like, "Oh my god, that's a total like fuck you for dumping me, you know? Yeah. And this this is what I'm doing to, you know, re- have you remember the connection that we had and, you know, we fucked to this song, you know? Yeah. And <laughs> this was like, the first song we ever, this is the first movie we ever talked about on Director's Club oh, together. Really? Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I, it's funny, yeah, because I think, I think for me, I didn't watch Say Anything as a teenager. I didn't watch Say Anything when it came out, obviously. 
Um, so, like, to me, I was already keyed in from, for me, John Cusack was high fidelity. Sure. And so I was just already looking for the passive aggression. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> because I can that's, see that. that, like, sort of passive aggressive hostility is, like, all mm-hmm. of his character in high fidelity. I don't remember what I first thought of it, but, I mean, that's just one of those iconic moments that just gets, like, like you know, called back to and parodied, mm-hmm. where, you know, it, it is just, like, so removed from the context of what's going on in the movie. Yeah. You know, it, it, yeah. it can the, be hard to... The movie to... would still be great without it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's just, like, I think that's one of those things where it's just, it's so hard to see with fresh mm-hmm. eyes, you know? Um, but, um, I mean, the other uh, the, the other thing, just to kind of go back to, um, like, like the, the, the characters being, being taken out of their sort of, like, pop culture archetypes um the other thing i appreciated um about this is uh john mahoney's character where i mean especially in like in like 80s movies marketed to teens it's like the the parents are just like like cartoons they're they're so flat they're usually like yeah they're just an afterthought in those movies yeah yeah and it's it's like it's like the best you can hope for is just like like a parent who is completely nasty to their child as like this way of just like manufacturing drama. I will I will say uh, um, Harry Dean Stanton in Pretty in Pink is a uh, oh, good true. example of an of a good interesting. I, I actually haven't seen Pretty sure in Pink, sure. But... I mean, but you're generally you, you are sure. right. But I was yeah. just that was just the first thing that came to mind was like yeah. Harry Dean Stanton. Doing it. I, I guess I, I yeah I guess I was thinking like more like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, where yeah, it's yeah. like Ferris Bueller, his parents are clueless. Cameron's par- dad, he's an asshole, which I think ties just... into like flattering kids who watch yeah. the movies. Yeah, because it's like it's like I mean I mean it does kind of come around to you know. That, that end scene where where John Mahoney does like confront John Cusack and he's like no I don't think you're good enough for my daughter but there I mean there is just like a really complex relationship there between him and Diane where it's like he I mean you can tell that he loves her and he wants to protect her but at the same time it's it's like he is kind of I mean he's manipulating her he's lying to her um but there's this also like like weird relationship that they have where they're like um they're they're like treating her as a brand almost like like, like he's kind of um like, like he's, he's like a pro- he, she's a project of his yeah almost. yeah exactly and it's like he sort of he sort of um taught her to look at herself the same way um again maybe there was some relating t- to that when i was 17 but I'm, i have this like paranoid fantasy that my parents are gonna hear this podcast somehow and we're gonna like <laughs> <laughs> that's stupid that's the stupidest thing i could think uh-huh. but but yeah i, I mean I, I think that's that's a bit like the like my dynamic with my parents as well i don't know maybe that's like an only child thing also um, it's, it's funny this is obviously a movie that is not like a mike lee movie but one thing it does share is it it kind of is able to sketch out um, in little glimpses of like little moments, little lines of dialogue. It's able to just sort of hint at a world of depth underneath the characters yeah. and their histories and their relationships. Yeah. Um, I think the fact that John Mahoney is the age he is like kind of says mm-hmm. something about his character. Like I think that's an interesting dynamic as well that mm-hmm. he is this you know like he works at this old folks home and he is like an older father and he is sort of like do he has sort of built this <laughs> built this daughter frankenstein style um, <laughs> well i mean kind of yeah uh, and it's and and you get the feeling that it's like the one thing he has in his life at this point is yeah. her um yeah. you know he he has given up on the idea of ever getting remarried he has given up on the idea of you know uh, of achieving anything else himself, uh, 
And it's... Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a lot of little glimpses. The the relationship, I think she's only in two scenes, but Joan Cusack in that movie. Oh, yeah. And the relationship between her and John Cusack and, and the sort of history there and, like, what he means for the, uh, his nephew. and mm-hmm. it, it, it does kind of feel like when, you, when you're first meeting the characters that the movie is going to go, like, towards him and his family. And then I kind of feel like, like you know, swerving instead into, like... Mm-hmm. John Mahoney's whole bullshit is like a really, you know, unexpected turn for it to take. Mm-hmm. It's and it's wild. It's so wild to me. So uh, and it I works. About this. I, oh, that's totally, what I love yeah. about it. You know, yeah. I talked about this on Letterbox in my Letterbox review of Say Anything. Um, it made me actually stop for a second. And obviously, the very first episode of this podcast was predicated on the idea that Jim likes Cameron Crowe. He likes Cameron Crowe even when Cameron Crowe's work is a little sloppy, even when his movies are like kind of a little embarrassing and this is when we recorded this we bought a zoo had not come out yet uh, <laughs> aloha some of his some of his more embarrassing films had not yet been released um i don't know if you still feel the same way jim but like uh the idea was that i hated i was just very hostile to the idea of a director wanting me to feel warm fuzzy th- feelings because to me warm fuzzy feelings were the death of art you know or whatever like some whatever dumb high-minded idea i had because we started this podcast when i was 22 or something like that um so like to me uh when i rewatched this it was wild i was like oh i should rewatch i should watch more cameron crowe movies i think i'm kind of like finally at an age where i can just sort of let even a bad version of this movie into my life and i watch singles and it is so so not say anything and like almost famous is so so not this movie and it's like so wild to me that he was able to pull this out exactly one well it's been a long time saw fast times at ridgemont high he wrote the script for that and that feels like maybe that's a comparable thing in some Mm. ways I don't, I don't think just in terms of the depth of the characters and the surprising mm. maturity that it treats the teenage lives. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and maybe it's just because it it is kind of following so many storylines. I don't I don't feel like Fast Times at Ridgemont High has has the the like vulnerability of of say anything. Yeah, I, I'm no. kind of curious when you Patrick when you say warm and fuzzy was that like like you're like. Like episode one, Patrick's yeah, yeah. interpretation. Okay, because like, because like, say anything. I I don't feel like it's warm and fuzzy. Well, at all. I just feel like it's it's just vulnerable. No, no, no. Well, that and even in the first episode, I said this movie really surprised me. I really love this movie a lot. Uh-huh. But I was thinking about sort of you want to talk about movies that are like flattering its audience. I I was a seventeen year old who liked classic rock when I saw Almost Famous, and I totally yeah. rejected it because I felt <laughs> it was so pandering to me. Really. Yeah, I felt oh, like I felt for I felt like sinker. I really thought it was just like handing me this like point of identification and saying, "Wouldn't it be cool if you were here? You could be there because you're just as cool as this guy because you know that the doors are good or whatever the fuck." Like, <laughs> and that guy. I, was th- me. I think I think Almost Famous has issues, but I still like it. Same with Vanilla Sky. I I know both of those movies. I, I think well, I, I know Almost Famous is really beloved. By writers and critics and things like that, and I understand why it, it, it makes complete sense why people have a strong connection to it. Um, I certainly loved it the first time I saw it, but I've seen it a few times and I don't like it quite as much. But I, there's things about—I mean, obviously, Philip Seymour Hoffman in that movie is remarkable. There are things about Almost Famous that are very good. There are things about Vanilla Sky that are very good. There's even a couple things about Singles that I enjoy. Um, there's yeah. probably some things about Jerry Maguire that I would be, really enjoy, but like. It's just wild to me that, like, Say Anything just feels like 
he had something like bottled up inside him and that was it and then he shot it and he was like oh okay wait I have a career now I have to do this again I, w- I wonder if I wonder if James L. Brooks had anything to do with it because I know he executive produced it it feels a, it's a very James L. Brooks movie I mean it's still Cameron yeah. Crowe's script and film I would never take that away from him because you read the script it's possible that Cameron that James L. Brooks helped shaped it if you watch say anything it the, the structure of it feels you know the tone of it it feels comparable to something like Terms of Endearment um mm-hmm but uh, but it still feels like you watch the rest of Cameron Crowe's movies. It doesn't feel like where where did that come from? It just feels like he never got there again. Um, singles kind of hurt is hurt because you can feel that in, he instead of uh, depicting a population that is very emotionally open and vulnerable and like all the characters and say anything sort of just deal with each other on their own terms. Yeah. Uh, singles is about like the disaffected, uh, you know, mid to late 20 something yuppies in Seattle grunge scene. So it's like very much characters who are deflecting personal feelings by saying non sequiturs about granola or whatever the fuck. Like there's a lot of stuff in that that feels like uh, Cameron Crowe trying to be cool. And the last thing Cameron Crowe has ever been, and I think he would admit to this as well, since seeing as he made almost famous about his own life, like Cameron Crowe has never been cool. <laughs> yeah. Like Cameron Crowe literally made a movie about touring with rock bands. And that movie was about how uncool he was. <laughs> um, and then you get to stuff like Elizabeth town, which is like such problem <laughs> and it's such drivel and every, and it's, and it just seems so insincere and in a, Enable to deal with big emotions in an honest way. Um, you know, you know, a movie is bad when it's about um, you know a, a, a character losing their dad, and I hate it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That says a lot about Elizabeth Town. It's the uh, Elizabeth Town ad Astra effect. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> it's like there's got to be something really wrong for Jim not to respond to that one. Um, but yes, anything rules. Yeah, yeah, that movie's great. I um, love it still. Are you excited that at some point, inevitably, probably, there's going to be some Netflix or Hulu TV series oh, called Say Anything oh. that is like, it's going to happen. Like, all that shit's getting recycled. No. Oh, that, that, <laughs> I don't want to watch the High Fidelity one. I just... I, I kinda, I'm, I'm kind of interested in that one. Yeah. I, oh. I, 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 well, I kind of feel like, like High Fidelity, at least, like, like, they're, the, like that story and that premise is possible to expand into a a series a or, limited or a run mini, series. Yeah, a limited yeah. run series. Yeah, maybe. Say say anything is just is like such like a liminal space movie. I mean the other the other movie that came to mind was of course uh, Dazed and Confused mm-hmm. when I was what watching if, it because it's that same kind of thing yes. where it's just like like the summer before a huge fucking change in who you it's, are. It's funny, yeah, I guess I guess mm-hmm. it's I guess the thing about Cameron Crowe is that that is actually what Richard Linklater is really good at doing. <laughs> but he, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, and has very consistently been good at it. Sensibilities or whatever. But I guess, yeah, when Cameron Crowe went to singles, uh, Richard Linklater went to... Uh, like, you compare Days and Confused to Say Anything, there's no question, which is the more interesting interpretation of rock music in the 70s. Well... Um, they're not comparable. And they, and they both have great but. endings to where I don't... I feel so satisfied that I don't I don't I don't feel necessarily like oh I want to see more of those characters in like a ten episode series yeah, you know? yeah but I, I just if, like the self contained it started at the beginning of senior year <laughs> and they had two seasons on Hulu and Ansel Egort played <laughs> like Dobler 
Cursed podcast. Yeah, this is the most cursed podcast. Jay Chi will hit us up. <laughs> We're available oh, for interviews. No. Um, hey, Jim. Who, me? Yeah, you, buddy. What have you been watching? Ooh. Um, I want to talk about a couple of things quickly. But the thing is, is I'm not going to have a, like a definitive yay or nay or even like some fantastic insights because I haven't yet to finish them but I still want to recommend them even though I haven't finished them and you've been you watching a Bella, these... a Bella Tar movie haven't you <laughs> you're yeah, like 12 much. hours into Santa Tango <laughs> yeah or that hard to be a god movie that I'll never get through yeah yeah oh um, but yeah no the, the, the first one I, de- I definitely can't completely as- assess since I've only seen the first episode and that's a new show on Amazon Prime called Tales from the Loop which it's not the greatest title in the world, but the main reason why I wanted to start watching it is because the episode, the first episode I saw is directed by Mark Romanek. Mm. And he, he hasn't made a movie since Never Let Me Go back in 2010. Yeah, it's been a bit and, for him. Yeah, and that's that's remains one of my favorites. And he it's hasn't also, even done that many music videos, I don't think. Uh, probably not. I haven't checked, but... No, he, I'm sure he, it's been a case of... Similar to Shane Carruth, trying to get things off the ground and just they're not happening. But I'm glad that he got to work again. Um, and it's, it's, it's definitely, it's very Alex Garland-esque, and I'll get to him again in a minute, but it's, it's got a lot in common with this other show that I want to talk about. But it also has, you know, the high concept science fiction storyline that I just immediately cling to because I feel like it takes some of its initial ideas from something like Primer because it does revolve around quantum mechanics and time travel and things that are very difficult to comprehend, but I'm still fascinated by them. Uh, Tales from the Loop stars Rebecca Hall as this really super smart scientist that is working on this secret machine built to unlock and explore the mysteries of the universe. And in the first episode I saw, there's kind of a twist that I don't want to give away, but let's just say we, we, we sort of start out by following a, a young girl living in this small town, and the, the time in which it takes place is not clearly defined, necessarily, and it's, it sort of reveals itself as it goes on. But she becomes very curious about um, this mysterious work that her mother is conducting uh, underground at this facility known as the Loop. And no, I'm not talking about downtown Chicago. I'm talking about a crazy underground lab. Whoa! And, yeah, I know, right? You, you hear the Loop, and the first thing you think of is Chicago, of course. Well, I mean, yeah. But no. But no, it's there's, some, there's something going on down there, and we don't quite know what it is. And some interesting things begin to happen. And when I went to look up more info on this, uh, I found out it's based on two things that I don't think get adapted very often. The first is uh, a narrative art book by Simon Stalinhag, and I don't I don't know anything about about him. And it's and apparently there's also a 2017 tabletop role playing game called Tales from the Loop. Oh, interesting! So like, is that weird? Right? Game based off of the art book, or are the two things unrelated? I think they're related. I'm pretty sure they are. Uh, but I haven't... Yeah, I haven't explored more of their source material. But I'm just like, huh, that's really interesting. 
and it has a, it has a little bit of a Stranger Things quality, at least initially. But I don't think it stays in that tone. Uh, but I'm I'm, re- I'm recommending it based on only one episode, and the fact that I kind of want to just support Mark Romanek. I know every episode is done by a different director, including later on Jodie Foster and Ty West. So we'll see. Oh, okay. <laughs> I am familiar with Simon Stallenhog, uh, if these uh, Google image search results are correct. Simon Stallenhog is sort of a futurist concept artist um, who has these really amazing paintings about uh, they, they're sort of uh, science fiction in subject, I guess, where they depict a future where um, some sort of horrendous fasc- fascist looking uh, piece of uh, tech or, uh, you know, a ship, like uh, spaceships or, or mechs or something sort of uh, clash against, like, a pastoral setting or a more domestic scene that you would associate with modern day. And um, it, they have a lot of mood. There's a lot of, like, heavy fog. And they're really interesting. Like, he, his art looks like someone's concept work for a sci-fi show. So it seems very clear to me that, yes, this is something that would adapt very well. Yeah, I don't doubt that, and it's, and it's 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 pretty visually striking, and you know, uh, R- Romantic does kind of this s- similar framing that he does that's very Kubrickian at times, where things are very centered, and uh, there's just a lot of vast spaces and great landscapes and just weird images at times, but still still grounded. It seems it seems very grounded in, in reality, and yet there's a lot of fantastical weird things going on. So I'm I'm recommending that in addition to this this other show that really surprised me that's on Hulu and it's this limited mini series by the aforementioned Alex Garland and it's called Devs which is just one episode away from concluding and I'm 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 very excited to see if it sticks to landing because for the first time I'm actually responding very positively to something Alex Garland has directed since I was not a fan of Ex Machina or Annihilation, which uh, which definitely surprised people because uh, those were two movies that made a lot of lists when we read when we read off other listener lists. People seem to love those movies, and I just I thought they were just okay at best. That's kind of funny because I've been avoiding I've kind of been avoiding devs like Hulu has been trying to get me to watch it, um, but it just it just looks so much like Ex Machina, which I didn't dislike. I can see that, but it just it was just like so intense, and I'm just like Hulu, I can't right now. Just just show me Frasier, show me Bob's Burgers. Yeah. <laughs> Keep nice creepy thing. Nick Offerman. I drunk can't history. Right now. Drunk history. I want to see Johnny Knoxville mouth the words of someone who's had seven vodka cranberries. Thank you. Um, so, Jim, I feel very similar to the way you do about Ex Machina and Annihilation. They're not awful movies, but I find them very underwhelming, especially given their reputations. And the thing about those movies as sci fi is they sort of take the tone and tenor of like serious, hard science fiction, but I find them very shallow and. They, yeah, and sort of incapable of going in depth on any ideas. It sort of just presents a, an idea and is satisfied with that. Would you say that Devs uh, works in spite of this, or that he has sort of is doing something different? I'd say they're they're similar. I would I I, I wouldn't say. Yeah, I think I I agree with with your criticisms. Is that he just presents an idea. But I think here, because he's given the time to let the series evolve and let the story go on longer than just a couple of hours, I think that actually works in his favor because you do get caught up 
a little bit more. But it's also one of those shows that doesn't have like this, oh my god, you know, cliffhanger ending, which I'm actually happy about because that's kind of what I expect now with so many shows. It's just like, here's your big cliffhangers to make you want to, you know, binge this in all one sitting. And that's, you know, that's even, that's gotten on my nerves <laughs> over time because it just feels like a cliche. But here you have um, this really interesting uh, character named Lily who's a computer engineer and she begins investigating this quantum computing company called Devs and it's run by a very intense bearded Nick Offerman who uh, he, he, there's there's a lot going on with this character and I think that's kind of what I appreciate is that he does take time to let get let you to get to know each character and their backstory so there is a little bit more emotional weight behind certain things uh and lily is really you know the, 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 what really kicks things off is just her boyfriend disappears because he was just about to begin working with this company and she's trying to figure out what happened to him and this this uh devs is working on this secret p- project that involves the multiverse theory uh again uh that's jim nip whenever you bring up the multiverse theory and they bring up some really interesting physicist names that I've heard of before, but it's, it's, you know, they may or may not be able to look backwards and forwards in time. And what the show ultimately becomes in addition to having like a mystery element is just, it's all about free will baby and determinism and whether or not we have, you know, control of ourselves and the fate of the universe, which uh, is playing really interestingly right now it does have some creepy elements. It has that incredible ominous score. So that's one of the highlights of of annihilation was that score. And there's some moments where you're just like, Oh, this is really getting under my skin and it's really weird and interesting. And like, it's not just your typical synth, Sounds that somehow he manages to get these weird sounds that I can't even imagine getting from a synthesizer throughout this score, but it's pretty remarkable. And uh, you have Allison Pill, who's always great. I always like her, uh, and a very creepy hitman character. Uh, so yeah, there's there's just a really sense of, of of mystery. But in regards to like Nick Offerman's character, there it, it does tackle some grief that he's experiencing, and it also sort of fuels his motivation behind wanting to create this computer simulation. So you get to learn about his, you know, humanity in the midst of all this. So I think it's really good. I'm, and I'm again, like I've had issues with even just how Alex Garland wraps up his stories, because I think sunshine is a pretty great film until the last 20 minutes. So again, I don't know if maybe it will stick the landing or if I'll be disappointed with the, with the latest and last episode next week. But if you know me, I happen to love existentialist science fiction and, you know, people having deep conversations about free will. And this show has that and more. It's interesting. Uh, you Sometimes you'll recommend TV shows to me and it's nothing against you. It's whenever anyone recommends TV shows to me, I almost always ignore it because I'm just been burned so many times by shows people are losing their minds over. And then... You know, either it starts good, either I don't like it at all, or it's, which is fine, because then you watch a couple episodes, you're like, whatever, not for me. But the worst is it starts good, and then you get sucked in, and then you get this diminishing cost there, diminishing returns thing, where you're just like, oh, like, I guess I'm, I'm still watching Game of Thrones. I don't care. Like, I really don't like what's happening, but maybe it'll get good. And, like, there's... 
there is just this sort of sense of obligation where if you don't finish it, then all of the time you spent previously watching it is a waste. And I never want to watch any show until it is absolutely completed um, and people say it's good because then I know that I'm not going to be going to something that will inevitably disappoint me. But the thing you said about the episodes not ending on cliffhangers and feeling self-contained is the thing that will make me probably try to check this out. Um, yeah, it's only eight, and both shows I think are only eight episodes long, and I don't. So when think, you said Des, you're one episode away. Does that mean you just haven't finished the last episode, or they're airing them weekly? Um, they're airing them weekly, so I have to wait a week for the okay. final episode. So I'll wait for that to air, and then I'll see what you think, and then I'll maybe give it a look. Um, I the thing yeah, I yeah, wanted yeah. to talk about is the thing that is on Amazon Prime, which is Six Feet Under. Um, oh yeah! Oh my God! So I haven't thought about that show in a long time. So but I, I, I think Six Feet Under is sort of forgotten in terms of the history of prestige television. It's sort of Sopranos is the thing that people talk about. Uh, the Wire is the for thing sure. people talk about. Um, a lot of HBO shows that set the template for so much of what would come later had this like very brutal, violent, high stakes, life and death um, sort of appeal to them. And that's sort of what made Breaking Bad Breaking Bad. And I think Breaking Bad is the thing that everything else then went on to emulate. I think Breaking Bad is the show that is essentially like an old 1940s serial where every single episode ends with, Whoa, how are the boys going to get out of this one? Are they trapped in this room or can they figure out a gadget where they use this chemical and this chemical and blow a hole in it? Like, that was the show that was like all cliffhanger. Um and I think that's sort of what made the current kind of format of TV. Um, yeah. And Six Feet Under sort of got lost in that. Six Feet Under is a soap opera, uh, more or less a dramatic show about a, a funeral home, uh, a family who uh, sort of has to come together to run it after the patriarch of the family dies, um, and he, who was running the home previously. And it's about the running of the funeral home. It's about the funeral business industry. And it is about these characters dealing with the fallout of their father's death, but also, um, you know, pretty early on, it's clear that this show isn't just going to be them in mourning. Like the thing about it is the thing about someone dying is it isn't, you spend the rest of your life in the feeling that you had, uh, in the first week or so after the funeral, but it also isn't a thing that is settled and done with and then you move on. It's just sort of always there in the background. It never, ever leaves. Um, and that's sort of represented by Richard Jenkins, who plays their patriarch, uh, appears throughout the series as a ghost. Um, not as a literal oh, right. ghost, but as a, a whatever the character is feeling at any given moment. He sort of appears to be... It's a great role for Richard Jenkins because he's sort of just this like prick. like He's just like needling people. <laughs> Uh, just like all of pe- everyone's worst fears and uh, insecurities and, you know, big questions that they didn't have answered. He is just sort of taunting them about it. Uh, he just sort of represents those anxieties they have uh, through these conversations they have with their imagined conversations they have with their dead dad. Um, right. And it's it's an amazing show because, A, it is definitely not big cliffhangers. It is not huge, high stakes. It is not, you know, there are characters who are sort of outlandish uh sort of outrageous there's a uh, character played by jeremy sisto who has bipolar disorder and like that escalates in in a sort of harrowing way but then that settles it's not like the whole episode you're like 
it's not like the whole series you sit there going like when's he gonna snap yeah I think I think I, I mean so we, we just finished the first season and we yeah. just like started the second and, and I feel like like uh, Jeremy Sisto's character does become a bit more grounded yeah um, as the series progresses because yeah I mean in, in the first season it, it's sort of a it's Pretty like a psychological thriller sort yeah, of a thing where yeah. he's tormenting these people. Yeah, where yeah, where it's like it's like oh, it's it's like all these other characters obviously have like a lot of like like complex psychological baggage, but then it's like oh, you have the one character who is like given the like diagnostic label for what's going on with him. So of course he has to be like, you know, this like like mastermind with all these like elaborate, you know, he's like the, yeah. the, the twisted, you know. It's it's kind of I mean, not it, a great look. But. It's also it's also 2001. There's a lot of stuff about that, that show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that is dated in some yeah, way. Yeah, some of it is just yeah. like, especially um, revolving around uh, David, played by Michael C. Hall, who would go on to play Dexter in a show that is very much the uh, cliffhanger <laughs> uh, oh, show, yeah, uh, that show. Uh, approach to plotting. Um, but in this show, he you know he plays a very mild-mannered, um, very timid uh, you know uh, funeral director um, who is gay. And it, there's a lot of stuff that's really interesting, sort of almost in a time capsule way about... Mm-hmm. Uh, the gay community in the early aughts and sort of the place they found in society that was in flux uh, in a world that a, you know, we're post nineties, we're post coming out. We're not really at a point where the AIDS scare is going as hard it was, it was the Mm -hmm. previous two decades. Yeah. But also like Matthew Shepard had only been like three years. Sure. And we're, and we're living Mm -hmm. in the Bush years. Yeah. Um, I think I'm pretty sure like the whole series takes place during the Bush years, you know? So there is this sort of like, uh, phantom of like a conservative, uh, religious right, um, that it sort of exists over the culture. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because like the family, I mean, or at least David and Ruth are pretty involved in their church and they're Catholic. So that's a whole thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) So it's, it's, it's this great show because a, it is not about big cliffhangers. It is not about, um, outrageous story arcs. I can't recall the later seasons as well. Um, so it's possible it gets there. It's a lot of shows. Um, I, I, I mean, I mean, I, I watched... there's, there's an episode I'm, that rubbed me the wrong way. There's one particular episode that feels like a, an outlier to the whole series. I th- if it's the same one you're th- I'm thinking of. Wait, 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 let's, let's count to three and then all say what we're thinking. All right. All right. One, two, three. David, David gets, gets robbed. <laughs> <laughs> okay then <laughs> but, kidnapped or robbed yeah yeah that's what yeah. I thought but the thing about that episode is that sort of is such a like it's sort of, it's a very outrageous episode and I do have sort of mixed feelings about that mm-hmm. but like they do at least have the good sense to like not try to figure out what the next David gets kidnapped episode is. They instead, <laughs> they're not trying to think of like what the big next big stunt to have people talking is. They instead make that define or at least color his character for the entire rest of the series because yeah. it's this traumatic event that he is takes forever for him to get over. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not just like. Uh, it, yeah, it's not just outrageous and then we have to forget that because we came up with the next outrageous thing. Um, and also, his, David and Keith, his sort of on again, off again boyfriend, they have an ongoing relationship through the series um, that is, to me, the best thing of the show. Um, it's really interesting and nuanced and complicated. And I think all of the sort of romantic relationships in that show are extremely interesting and nuanced in a way oh, yeah. that most TV shows do not have. Um, 
And but also like the main reason I found it really good to watch right now is because I, as someone who is sort of depressed and uh, is sort of uh, pessimistic and you know and the world in the state is in like I can't stop myself from thinking about death a whole lot. I've been just it's just been a fixation of mine that's you know it, it gets me really upset and it's hard to sort of get out of at times. Um, and this is a show that is very much about looking death and what death means straight in the eye. And it, and despite the fact that Richard Jenkins appears as a ghost, again, he's not a literal ghost, it is not a show that is saying death is very frightening and scary, but they're in a better place and it's everything goes through and ultimately it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like, there is death in this show that is just fucked up and unfair and shouldn't happen and awful. And there's so many... You see so many different kinds of people die, and the people they leave behind deal with it in so many different ways. Um, and you see so much alienation and grief, and it's it's not it's it's a very warm it's a very funny show. Like that's kind of one of the main reasons it's nice to put on, even though at the end it almost always ends. You're like, oh no, <laughs> these characters got put through the ringer again. <laughs> um, but like, it's very funny. It's not a joyless show, but it is a show that goes into some really dark territory um, and not dark in the way that's like, what would it take for him to kill a man? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like, I mean... <laughs> or, or like even a Don Draper sort of like, what even is man? You yeah, know? I, I think I think it's like, I mean, like I said, we just finished the first season and I kind of feel like when it's HBO, like like the, I, maybe like especially at this time, like the first season, like they're really going for like the, the envelope pushing yeah. intense. But like, like, like there's an episode where it's like, like, they have the the funeral home does the funeral of like an infant that just dies from SIDS Ugh. and it's like yeah that's just that's just a thing that happens sometimes and it, and it's just sort of like and there's not cool. necessarily like, like a lesson that's learned at the no, end of it no yeah it's, it's just not that like, every um, single death brings a new life lesson it's like a lot of them are just shitty yeah it's like um th- I mean for sure this this has nothing to do with like film or TV but um. I've I've gone to a few uh, death cafes over the past uh, year or so. Um, death cafes are basically just like a, a community event where um, people come together and you nosh and just sort of have like a group discussion about dying. Um, and I it, it, it's kind of weird because like um, there's this this uh, uh, studio where well I mean not right now obviously but like uh, this yoga studio. Um, where I go to classes and like they'll have one every quarter or so, um, and it's kind of it's weird, but it also kind of makes me feel a little better. I mean, because like death is also something like I get pretty you know anxious about and like you know worry about like my parents and you know my loved ones and and myself. Um, but just kind of like like going and sitting around with like a dozen people and just kind of like having a group discussion about like you know, like these various like open ended questions that, you know, like, like, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a facilitated discussion and I'm sure like, you know, they're all run differently. It's just sort of like a, you know, um, a a movement. There's no, um, there's no like, like structure to it. It's just like, you know, someone hears about it. They, they throw it together if, if they have the the resources to do it. But, um, but six feet under kind of makes me think about that where it's just sort of, sort of being able to, um, to, kind of, you know, feel like, yeah, I, this is a, a really intense thing that we all have some, some intense feelings about. And, um, maybe it's like, we all don't see it the same way, but like, that's okay. Um, 
Yeah, so that's what, that's what Six Feet Under makes me think about, that this weird thing that I've done. Yeah, well, no, I mean, that, that's <laughs> it's very- a really great show. And, uh, yeah, and it, it's, it's, it's also, it, and you can tell me when you get to the end, but I felt it, st- it definitely sticks to landing. I think that final episode, you know, makeup aside, is really powerful. <laughs> yeah, we've had this discussion before, I think, probably on the podcast. I've probably already used uh, Six Feet Under as what we watched the first time I went through it. And I remember having this conversation about, I like the concept, but the actual makeup effects, I think, are so bad that it r- removes all the emotion from it. I mean, I... I yeah. I, um, it, it's kind of Not funny. spoiling anything. I'm bringing bringing this up at the same time when I'm I'm remembering I'm like having this specific memory about like sitting and crying after watching say anything but I I mean I watched it on my laptop like I remember exactly like like where I was um and just like the whole setting of like watching the last episode of Six Feet Under the first time I watched the show through and again like after finishing I just like sat there and cried my eyes out. Um, mm-hmm. Just, but but again, like I saw it on a laptop, so maybe the makeup effects were not. Or I'm just through. like nitpicky, like <laughs> about that sort of thing. Uh, I I tend to hate. I'm not. I'm actually not going to say finish that sentence because I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it. Because I do think it's really worth watching, and I do think it's really rare for a show like this. There are a lot of soap operas. There are a lot of uh, like, especially I feel like on network TV now, This Is Us is a very popular show on NBC, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of. Uh, these sorts of shows, I think Peter Krause, the one of the leads, if not the lead, yeah. uh, character of Six feeling. Feet Under. Yeah, uh, I think he was also in a show called like Parents and Children or something like that on CBS or whatever. And there's a lot of these kinds of shows, but they rarely have this level of specificity. They rarely have a cast this good. Like pretty much everyone in the cast is great. Yeah, um, they rarely uh, go these places, but. The balance of being able to go somewhere really dark, but not necessarily being uh, sort of aroused by the premise of going to a dark place to begin with. Yeah. Um, it's it's just like a really rare special thing that will probably never, ever exist again. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, It's definitely the best thing Alan Ball ever did. I yeah. mean, I never watched True Blood, but... Um, tr- yeah, True Blood's different. <laughs> True Blood's a different yeah. show. <laughs> I mean, I mean, if you if you want to see something that's like incredibly over the top and campy, um, I I think I think the first the first couple seasons of True Blood are like good fun. That that specific okay. brand of like fantasy horror supernatural soap is like just not I'm not into it at all. Um, so I've never really given True Blood a shot. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. Also, it's like I think it has some race problems, but. Anyway, I mean uh, Frederico in uh, Six Feet People, Under yeah, is yeah. also everyone. <laughs> everyone is like this super nuanced, complicated, you know, conflicting character. And then Federico, like all of his issues, are just sort of like he's Latino. So here are the Latino issues: it's machismo, it's this, it's that. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, as good as yeah. as good as uh, uh, Freddie Rodriguez is in that show, I think he's a very good actor. Yeah, but the character is a little like it stands out compared to everyone else. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's a show I wouldn't mind going back to. I, like you said, it's just a killer ensemble. Where uh, spending time with those characters again, I, I would look forward to. Yeah, yeah. and and, and they're, they have, all, they're all complex and interesting. Yeah, and they have a lot of great like supporting cast too, um, like Ben Foster and Kathy Bates. Ileana and, Douglas, extremely yeah. memorable in her like one episode <laughs> role. Oh, I remember. Her, yeah, Lily Taylor shows yeah, up for a while. Yeah, Lily Taylor. 
Is Lily is Lily Taylor okay? That that's what I asked Patrick <laughs> when we were watching. Say anything. Let's just send this question out to the world. <laughs> Lily Taylor, I really hope you're okay. I I understand it's like you know sometimes you're an actor and you just have like like that kind of character who you're really good at. But oh. I just, I hope you're okay. I hope you're I hope you're fulfilled. <laughs> you seem like a really nice person. I think she is. I hope from what so. I last heard on like a podcast interview or something. Oh, good, good. Because like I don't know. I think she's doing good. I, just, I got worried. Because she always plays characters where you're just like, oh no, Lily Taylor. You know. Uh... I, just, I just hope she's oh, okay. No. Yeah. This seems like this is like one of those kind of uh, gross exploitative podcasts that would suddenly become a huge viral thing where you start off a, like an investigatory investigative podcast called Lily Taylor Are You Okay? <laughs> where you're like I'm going to meet Lily Taylor and I'm really going to get to the root of her problems. <laughs> and people are like I heard the way Lily Taylor told you she was fine for the fifth time. That fifth time she was breaking. Keep it up. <laughs> like <laughs> Lily Taylor Are You Okay? Where all, all fine podcasts are found. Um that would be good. Yeah, we'll do that next. That'll be the next thing. We got time now. It's nothing yeah, but it's like if 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 Corona's gonna do one thing, it's gonna just start a thousand fucking podcasts. Oh yeah. <laughs> Fine by me. I can't get enough of them. Well, speaking of, we should probably get to the sort of uh, raison d'etre. Is that how you pronounce the, oh, the French phrase d- for the reason this podcast exists? <laughs> Directors Club, we should talk about Mike Lee. Deadpool. A new Avengers film, man, you don't really care. talk about without talking about his process which annoys him to no end because he fucking hates answering questions about it in interviews and it's all interviewers like to ask him about but it is sort of the unique thing about the way he works and I don't know of another filmmaker who works this way so Mike Lee uh, was sort of trained as an actor in the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts uh, which I'm led to believe is a very prestigious uh, university in uh, England, it's, you know, in my mind, it's the Juilliard of England. I don't know how accurate that is, but uh, he was trained as a classical actor in the early 60s. So this is, you know, this is pre-method, you know, this, this uh, uh, Marlon Brando was around or whatever, but that wasn't how people were teaching acting. This is not really when, uh, you know, this is not the under the influence of Stanislavski or anything like that. So this is a very classical Shakespearean um, um, sort of learned wisdom uh, approach uh, to acting that I think nowadays actors probably, unless they're specifically training to be in Shakespearean plays in the old style, I think a lot of this uh, sort of teaching method is 
not used very much because it's very not it's not about sort of finding the truth of the character as much as it is about sort of diction and posture and um, movement and things like that um, which are also important tools in an actor's toolbox but like not the important thing um, and Mike Lee hated it uh, he absolutely despised it he wanted to be an actor um, but he just couldn't deal with that sort of thing so then he went on to do uh, paintings and drawings he did still lifes and he realized that the thing he hated about acting was that there was nothing real about it because um, when he was, you know, drawing a bowl of fruit or whatever, sketching a bowl of fruit, he would look at the fruit and then he would draw what he saw. It was all about what was actually there in front of him. It was what was true. Um, and that was the thing he couldn't get um, in the theater world before. So he started as a theater director. Um, um, what he, The phrase he likes to use is devise. He devised plays. Um, he is credited as a writer and director, but this has been his method with uh, alterations, uh throughout his career, this has pretty much been his working method, his whole professional career, um, which is he would get actors together, um, he would get together an ensemble. In the early days, he would kind of have no idea at all, and then as his career went on, he would sort of come in with more and more of a starting point. Um, the actors would basically generate their characters by these very, very long process of conversations, hours and hours long conversations, uh, a typical approach would be they would start talking about six different people they knew in real life um, and what they found interesting about them or whatever. So you'd have long conversations about their friends and family. Um, and eventually they would pinpoint like, I think the character could be someone like this. And then they would talk more and more. And this is all in the one-on-one basis. Uh, okay, well, you know, what was their childhood like? What was what was middle school like? What was seventh grade like? What was eighth grade like? I'm sure they have different grades in England or whatever, but like what was each this part? And he keeps dialing in more and more and eventually he gets the ensemble together and he goes, okay, how did you two meet? Okay, let's act out you two meeting. Okay, let's act out you two the first time that you were on a date. Okay, let's act out the first time that you went away on a holiday. Um, and there is this incredible rehearsal process that, you know, anywhere from three to six months of doing this. And through these improvisations, they would eventually develop a character. They would develop a relationship. They would figure out how all of this ensemble were related to each other. And then a story would suggest itself. And through the notes he would take through this whole process, he would then go and then write a completed script, which they would perform verbatim. So when you see a Mike Lee movie, they're improvised films in that the scripts were written via improvisation, but they are not. there's no improvisation happening on screen. They are all working from a screenplay, um, which you can tell if you compare a Mike Lee movie to like a Mumblecore movie or, you know, uh, you know like a, something like that. You can, the diction, the speed in which they talk over each other, um, the way they don't sort of stumble on their words that a lot of uh, improvised movies do um, or improvised TV shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm or something, you can tell it's a very different effect. Um, And that is more or less the way his films are made. Um, So Mike Lee has had kind of an interesting career because he became very, very uh, popular acclaimed uh, uh, dramatist, I guess. Again, playwright is not quite the word you want to use for someone who goes through this whole process to produce and direct a play for the stage. Um, But uh, as an artist, he became renowned in London, which then gave him the ability to make films, which uh, he maintains is always one of his goals, was to sort of pivot into films. Um, And eventually he was adapting his plays to films. He was making films from this method, uh, not based on any of his plays. 
and he w- these films were TV movies. They were produced by the BBC, which is you know a uh, it's more or less a government run corporation. Um, it's nationalized television, so he was more or less a, an artist whose work was um, being what's the what's the word uh, subsidized subsidized yeah. by the state, mm. um, and he was telling these stories about. Uh, not exclusively, but a lot of focus on lower class characters. Uh, he was very influenced by the sort of social realist films of the late 50s and early 60s, which was a British movement of films uh, of, that were about lower class characters, that were about, you know, they were very frank about sex. They were about modern London. They were about the youth culture. Um, and yet what I think is also interesting is that Mike Lee came from privilege. You know, his father was a dentist so yeah, well it, he it's, sort just, of, it's just interesting that he it's um it's actually yeah it's, it's he was one foot in one foot out his his father was a was a doctor yeah. and i don't think he ever had to struggle um too much but he did live in a poorer neighborhood um right i was just about to say that yeah and that's how he was able to observe and these as, other lives yeah, around and him I, and i think actually if you look at the history of rap music um you will find that as often the case is that there are a lot of the people who you think of as great rappers, they didn't necessarily live, quote-unquote, in the hood. They lived next door to the hood. Like, Nas is someone who uh. didn't necessarily grow up super poor, but he did grow up knowing that world. And um, mm-hmm. I find that there's a comparable way he depicts things, uh, in our, and at least in terms of being close to it, uh, but still having the structure to uh, sort of frame it uh, as something larger. Um right. It's not like, I don't know, like Clerks is a movie that is a guy just depicting his life, but he, a guy who doesn't have the kind of formal training to frame that into something larger, um, which is like Clerks was effective in that way because people saw it and they saw themselves in it, but it's also doesn't really aspire to all that much um, because it is just a guy <laughs> working at a convenience store who made a movie, more or less. Um, yeah, but his television... Um his television films or plays uh, are really good. I mean, I haven't watched all of them, but there's a, certainly a BBC box set that you can get of all of his films together mm-hmm. that I, I highly recommend that the three that I've seen all really were something special in of themselves, even if they were just showcases for, you know, actors that we'd go on to see in, in subsequent films of his. But again, like he was able to sort of, be bleak and humorous and satirize middle class mannerisms and attitudes while having these really fully dimensional flawed human beings like a lot of contrasting personalities engaging with one another but more in a you know confined space and certainly like the camera isn't as daring or interesting in his earlier television plays they did they do look like they're on television sure. essentially I've, but they're I've still really the strong one. I've only seen mean time yeah, um, so yeah, the the one I, the one I recommend the most is called Grown Ups, and it has nothing to do with the Adam Sandler movie. Sure. But uh, uh, Leslie Manville and Brenda Blethyn together as sisters—that's all you need. Leslie Manville <laughs> is a name that comes up over and over and over again uh, throughout as you watch a oh, yeah. likely movie. She's one of the. He has a stable of actors, as you can imagine. This is a very different process. He doesn't want to work with movie stars because he doesn't like the baggage they bring, but also most movie stars are not going to dedicate six months of their life to, to make a film. 
um, <laughs> uh, for a for a film that costs no money to make, and therefore they have to probably work for not much money. Like all these actors who are in his films, I'm as great as they are. I imagine they're not getting big paychecks from them. I imagine this is what the kind of films that they love to make while they get their big paychecks from Harry Potter six or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, so he his films were mostly lived on TV. Uh, Meantime had a very small theatrical release. Um, Bleak Moments, his very first film, had a small theatrical release. Um, and then you get to 1989's High Hopes, I want to say. Um, that might be year. I think so. But uh, that film was sort of the first film that got released in America overseas. That was the first film that sort of had a slightly wider release, though still not a breakthrough by any means. Um and then the film he did after High Hopes is Life is Sweet, which is the first movie we're going to be talking about. I'm trying about. not to sneeze because it's a podcast and it can't be edited out. So that's why I was quiet. I wait, wait, wait. Everybody, shh. Let's listen to the sneeze. It's not a good fold. No, it's gone. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I, don't, I don't hear anything. Well, well, just like in in Mike Lee's movies, where where there's sometimes there's like like a like a thread of narrative where the tension builds, and then you never you never see the characters again. So that's that's what that's like. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anticipation yeah, that's true. doesn't always have payoff. Life is sweet is the I, life is sweet is the story of a I would say like lower middle class family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say so. Uh, in. Uh, um, who and, and and again, it's it's funny trying to synopsize Mike Lee movies. Generally speaking, some of them lend themselves more to it than others, but generally speaking, there's not really a high concept premise. Um, yeah, I. It's just sort of observing this family and the people in their lives and sort of the ways that they bounce off of each other in sometimes amusing and sometimes devastating ways. I, I've noticed... Yeah, I watched I watch this movie with my mom and she's like, is there a plot? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Um, I, I've noticed that um, with a lot of Mike Lee's movies, especially the, the ones that are set in like like modern day, there tends to be like a few like, like themes that kind of um, revolve around characters' professions. So I think like... True. like like cooking and food is kind of what what this movie revolves around in in some ways. Yeah. Um, well, in, in general, like his movies are always people serving each other tea. Always people like yeah. while you're here, you should have dinner with us. While you're, you know, like yeah. I, I poured myself a glass of wine while we took a break because his characters are always drinking wine. Yes. Um, oh yeah. It's, it's how people interact, and his his he has a lot of stuff he comes back to. Generally, he's very concerned about family. He's concerned about the place of family. What do families owe to each other? Yeah. What how do you, how do families deal with each other when they don't get along? How what what how much effort are they going to expend in bridging that gap? This is this is one of the few movies of I mean, and I haven't seen all of his movies, but obviously we've been watching a bunch of them over the past few days, so I've seen at least ten by now. I think I think this is one of the few that doesn't deal with pregnancy and childbirth and oh, sure. like the the decision or inability to have a child. Mm-hmm. That's that's like mm-hmm. a near ubiquitous theme, which I, I didn't realize and I found very interesting. Life is sweet, though it doesn't really come up. No. Um... I think it's the uh, it's just the characters' ages 
the the parents are too old to have another kid, yeah. and the the children are too young and not in a position where they're ever really want to. That's true. Yeah. There is one conversation where she asks, "Do you want to have a kid?" And she's like, "Yeah, someday." Yeah. But it's like it's not an anxiety or a pressure point in their lives at all. Yeah, and it's um so it's it's like yeah like like you said two parents Jim Broadbent and Allison Stedman and um, they have twin daughters um, Claire Skinner and Jane Horrocks. Um, and uh, Timothy Spall's their their wacky bud. <laughs> Timothy Spall <laughs> definitely stands aside. Oh no! Yeah. So they they live in this oh. they live in this kind of small house in a uh, London suburb, and um, they uh, they sort of go about their lives. Uh, there's the two uh, si- the two sisters who are twins are Natalie and Nicole Nicola Nicola. My my apologies and Nicola. It, uh, well, Natalie is a plumber. She's very masculine. Mm-hmm. Um, she wears men's shirts and stuff like that. And uh, she's got she, short hair. She's got short hair, and she's got her shit together pretty much. She's she's pretty unfazed by a lot of stuff that's going on. <laughs> she's like, yeah. Nat is such an interesting character because, like, she almost like doesn't have a story in the movie, but she's just so. Yeah, she's just so together. She's and such so, a welcome presence in yeah, the movie, though. Yeah, where like it doesn't matter. It's like it's like the yeah. only thing that you really get about her is like, oh, she's saving up money so she can take a trip to America. Yeah, like like that's her thing, and it's like, yep, yeah, that's that's just Nat. She's gonna go be a plumber now. You, yeah, like, I think you need that anchor. I think because yeah. the other the other three characters, uh, you know, will you know sort of bite at each other and they they sort of push pull and stuff yeah, like that and yeah. she is the sort of more static character who's the anchor of the family in some ways. Yeah. I guess this is the way we're going to have to talk about both this and another year is just describing each character rather than <laughs> the things that happen in the movie. So, uh and stark contrast to uh her twin sister um in classic fashion is Nicola and Nicola is um bulimic. Um, there's a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of undiagnosed mental health, uh, issues in mm-hmm. Mike Lee movies. There's a lot of characters who behave not just in a, oh, you're boisterous, you're loud, you're whatever, but like, there's something not clicking correctly. You're, you are refusing, you're like... It's like something a, that's damaging relationships with other characters right. and, and kind of how they function. And sort of so. sinking their lives in some way. Yeah. And it's, and it's funny, I went through this whole... Uh, preparation process watching all of these movies and I keep encountering these characters and eventually Mike Lee's really stubborn refusal to ever pathologize any of them got like kind of irksome for me because it began to to me to almost feel like what are you one of those people who doesn't think mental illness is real or that Mm -hmm. these are just like some people are just like that and there's nothing that could be done about it um, and then I saw Another Year, and that movie opens almost as a reputation. Say that, that Another Year opens is very different. Yeah, and then I was like, oh, okay, okay, this is just not, you're not interested in a scene where someone's talking to a psychologist necessarily. Mm-hmm, but um, mm-hmm. Nicola's uh, bulimia is sort of the one easily pathologized, like, that is... Right, well, I mean, also, because that is, that is something where it's it's behavioral in yes, nature, yes. so, so it's, it's mm-hmm. like, not, not left up to debate the same way that, like, you know... That, that something else might be that, that so, can be diagnosed. So Nicholas it's in the background. It's not harped on for the entire film. Right. Really. Yeah, there's like which, a scene which or two. It's just more character building. For me, her like that family is A okay, except Nicola. <laughs> like 
that family would really get along together wonderfully. Maybe maybe Jim Broadbent, uh, you know, is a little too indulgent to his ideas and doesn't have the follow through to go on. You know, yeah, he's kind of a he's kind of a mess. Maybe but... they could have more money. Maybe they could, you know, this or that. Uh, but like, maybe you know, maybe uh, Natalie um, could get along better with her mother, who is not necessarily disapproving of her mass of her sort of masculine presentation, but like just doesn't quite understand it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, like, there's a little bit here and there, but then Nicola is the character who is just, she's very hostile. They, I feel like the character is, like, 22, 23 years old. Yeah, yeah, they're about they're about that. Um, she's very hostile. She stays in her room. She doesn't eat. She And pretty much the thing about her is that she just is so full of self-loathing and she can't stand it and she can't stand herself so she just lashes out at everybody around her all the time um it's you know yeah i can't believe how much she says fuck off to her right. parents it's, yeah. it's just like man it's not a it's it's a type of character it's like it's obviously where this movie goes and the tone of this movie and everything's very different but like if you look at just the behavior and everything it's not that dissimilar from johnny and naked where it's just this sort of self-loathing um it just gets exported out to everyone in his vicinity, and there's just this like sort of scattershot, uh, just collateral damage all around him. And she's the same way, though. Obviously, everyone is used to her by now, so she's not like blowing people's minds or ruining their lives or mm-hmm. you know doing horrific things to them. She's just nasty. Yeah, and and it seems to be like like with Nicola, where a lot of her her anger is being filtered through. Politics, and I, I think this is sort of like a, you know, very end of the Thatcher era. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, I don't know, fuck all about British politics, so I'm not even going to try. Um, I mean, but- if you look at High Hopes, this and Naked, there is a very, there is a feeling of like, we are now coming. There is this like urgency of like, we're coming to reckon with the Thatcherism that has just happened, that has just yeah. been imposed on us, and mm-hmm. how are we dealing with it? Yeah, but but it, it seems like it seems like that's something that's sort of like um, a, a way for her to express how she's feeling, and it also sort of like maybe makes her feel more depressed. Like there's there's that confrontation that she has with her mother Wendy at the end. Um, you know, where, where Wendy's saying like, "Oh, you have all these political ideals, but you never do anything. You don't. You don't." join a group you don't try to you know help out the elderly you you just sit at home and you know where it's it's it it just seems like yeah it's just kind of it's just kind of interesting like like wondering what's going on with that with that character where it's just sort of like is is she in this like self-destructive hostile mode because of like the the like political context that she finds herself in in the sense of hopelessness or is it like the other way around where it's just like there's something internal that's fueling her view of the world for me it's pretty clear that she you know she has body dysmorphia and she just hates being in her own skin and she doesn't want to be seen she doesn't want people to look at her Mm -hmm. she doesn't she doesn't like people's attention. She has hair that's always covering her face and stuff yeah, like that. Like she wears these and... big t-shirts and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and she's always like, like, kind of like, 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 like her mother calls it tweaking, where she's like touching herself and like, yeah, like, like, yeah, right. Like, so she's very... just sort of, she's basically just like uncomfortable in her own skin. And the, the reason she's hostile to everyone else is because she, it's, it's like almost a relief to direct that 
that pain outwards instead of inwards. Yeah. And I think politics is the ultimate thing. Speaking as a mentally ill person who has a lot of anxieties <laughs> and stuff, it could feel really good to feel righteously indignant That's about true. a thing that you know is wrong and is very clearly wrong. And at least you can put your back up against that fact. Yeah. Um, I mean, I relate to the character of Nicola a whole fucking lot. I find, and I find like her destabilizing presence in the family is the, thing that makes this movie just so heartbreaking for me and 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 tough um it, it also probably should, at this point we should say mike lee is an extremely political filmmaker but not in the way that a lot of political filmmakers are he's yeah. not an oliver stone like this is gonna be the movie that no, blows no, no, the no. lid off this and he's not a um uh oh who's the director who did i daniel blake um ken loach ken, and he's not a ken loach type where it's like very didactic and an issues-driven movie. He's not making movies that are going to tackle a subject that then you can pitch to a certain audience by saying, this is a movie about racism, or right. this is a movie about this or that. He his No, he's mostly interested in family dynamics and, and, and these characters and how they all right. interact but he But he is together. very aware that the things that shape families and the things that shape people's lives are largely external forces like politics, like oh, class. Sure. Like, yeah, yeah, he's he's incredibly class conscious. That's that's something else that I, I that comes up in pretty much every every movie. And and um, I actually, um, do you mind if I share the observation? That you oh, made? go ahead. So so when Patrick and I were watching, so so Patrick and I watched Life Is Sweet together a, a year or two ago, and you know Timothy Spall um, plays this character who's like Jim Broad. Ben's buddy who kind of comes around and both of them are professional chefs and, uh, and Jim and Jim Broadbent's this very Jim like, Broadbent is a professional chef and Timothy Spall is opening a restaurant under the assumption that he too is a professional yeah, chef that's yeah that, that's a better <laughs> way to put it um but yeah. I mean they're so they're, they're sort of colleagues question mark but they're they're friends and like and like Timothy Spall I mean he his character is just like like he dresses in this like re- this like really like outlandish gear, and he's just like like big like big like uh like nineties like nineties American sports gear. Yeah, yeah, and and he's just like like very um like like he's a lot of like these like almost like affectations, and he just he just says things in like the strangest ways. Um, this is another character that you could be like if you're trying to diagnose people, you'd be like, is he on the spectrum? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. He he's just like like mm-hmm. he has like a lot of like these like just just like like very like like especially compared to the other characters. Um, just just like really like unusual ways of behaving, and like he's opening this this restaurant with, and the menu's just bizarre. I mean, maybe may, again, maybe it's a British thing that I'm just like not aware of as an American. No, no, no. <laughs> I've read all the reviews and stuff are talking about how disgusting all the menu items sound. Yeah, and it, yeah, who would want to go to that restaurant? Yeah, Ooh. yeah, it, it, it just seems pork it, cyst. Yeah, pork cyst, which That's actually, right. which actually apparently is a real actual food but it's it was what they would call like a type of dumpling in medieval times oh okay mm. it sounds like the name of a primus album yeah, it, yeah. Does. <laughs> it does um yeah so and, and it's just this like kind of like 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 poorly recognized like restaurant concept as we might call it in 2020 um and, and and it's like it's like I've never been like the first time we saw it we were, we we're just like not able to wrap our minds around Timothy Spall's character and then we're watching it again especially like for a movie that is so human scale yeah. and so low key yeah. and like all the problems feel like real problems and a filmmaker in general who doesn't make movies about generally speaking about big huge you know explosive moments right um he is such an I, th- a I think mike De- i think mike d'angelo brought that up yeah he did in his, in his review too and i i kind of felt I, I it was more like 
his interactions with the sous chef rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, that's the other thing where he's kind of a sex pest. Like, he's kind of a creep. Yeah. Um, which is also like, but yeah. Um, but anyway, so, so we're watching this movie the other night and Patrick is just like, Timothy Spall's a trust fund baby. And then it just clicked. You know, like, <laughs> like, because oh, cause it's like usually in, 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 in Mike Lee's movies, it's like you have, you have characters from different classes. And a lot of times, a lot of times the way that shows up is like, is like, there'll be like a family and one member of the family is upwardly mobile and the other isn't. And it's, it's like, they're starting out like working class and then one, one character just is able to, you know, make more money than, than what they were born with. And the other, you know, is more static and like that's usually causing tension between characters. You don't really see that in the family in Life is Sweet, but yeah, I mean that totally makes sense having this like this friend who just doesn't have to live in the real world because there's no like practical driving reason to have to like, support he, himself. He has a small like he lives in the same neighborhood as them. He has a small apartment, but it's absolutely full of weird luxury items. Yeah. Like he's bragging about his mattress. He has this that drum, drum set, yeah, that the crazy drum set, drum set. <laughs> yeah. like. He he has all of his clothes and stuff, and he's always like, "You take it, take it. You want it?" You're like he's yeah. like he is this person who <laughs> like objects are things that he obtains for pleasure, and then he doesn't think of them again. He's just very thoughtless in his life in general. And it de- like once I sort of realized like, oh, that's because he always grew up with money, and he's sort of just yeah living off of a trust fund, um, and he's just getting a bit long in the tooth about it, but he still hasn't really like he doesn't he's not hip. Uh, he's not like a cool Brooklyn hipster who doesn't have to have a real job because his parents take care of him. He's like an outlandish weirdo who has never been corrected because he just gets indulged all the time. That is that is what made his character real for me. And again, that's the sort of thing that I don't know if that's where they landed when they invented the character, but the character has a backstory for being that way. The way Mike Lee works, yeah. there is something there that is dictating why the character is acting this way. Um, and but we don't we don't get to know what that is. And the, and and the best Mike Lee movies, I feel like, in this and Secrets and Lies, in another year, you like you will have a single line of dialogue. You'll have a single brief moment or exchange that hints at like this whole like world of a backstory. That in a different movie, that hint would come in the first act, and then in the third act would come the monologue that explains it. And it uh, it would be like oh and then that's the revelation for the audience but that a lot of times that revelation never comes in a Mike Lee movie um, he doesn't yeah it doesn't he doesn't, it doesn't really hear want to explain all the, or not for every character at least every character has that in them every the big explosive sort of confrontation at the end of Life is Sweet um, where uh, where Nicola's mother who has been sort of suffering her hostility the whole movie just can't take it anymore and blows up on her and reveals that you know Nicola was in the hospital for with her eating disorder and that she almost died and that the whole family had to go through it and that sort of explains why the family all treats her the way they do where they don't really they like they sort of deflect the, the things she's saying but they don't like get up in her face and confront her about them and that sort of explains why because they're just afraid of pushing her away and they because they came so close to losing her um, she gets that big moment uh, in this movie, but the way Mike Lee makes movies, pr- like uh, potentially every character could have that big moment. Every character could yeah. have that blow up. Um, that's like you don't understand when my brother, you know, was six. You know, he did this, and that forever changed me. And now I can't do this anymore. Like those are things all of those actors have in them as they're making the movie, and. 
you and there is a depth there. It's really interesting because it's not that his films come off as more realistic. It's not simply just like he in interviews will say he wants to have a documentary like approach. He wants to just depict real life as it happens, but it's not really that way. Um, I do feel it does still feel a little theatrical. It does feel pitched for an audience. It doesn't like there's a Ken Loach movie I saw. Ken Loach's first movie, Kess, is a uh, story of this like uh, poor working class boy who uh, has a good touch with wild animals and raises a falcon. And like that movie, the way everyone mumbles and you can't hear what everyone's saying, and there's and it's and everyone's sort of very plain looking. And everything those movies feel like a documentary that someone just happened to script. Um, Mike Lee movies don't really feel like that. It's really interesting because you can compare his approach to something like John Cassavetes, who does a lot of like long drawn out rehearsal period where he gets into the root of character. Um, but they don't feel like yep. John Cassavetes movies either. Cause John Cassavetes always seems like he's trying to strip away, um, any sense of artifice and get to like the rawest, uh, most exposed version of any character. And as a result, his films can be like a little, uh, I'm trying to think of a word that isn't necessarily... Because I like John Cassavetes a lot. I'm trying to think of a word that isn't necessarily denigrating. But, like, they can come off as a little overblown and just, like, larger than life. Um, yeah, I was going to say I was gonna say melodramatic, melod- but not in a bad way. Yeah, melodramatic's right. almost, like, the wrong word. Because melodrama is the specific thing he's trying to get away from. But they're just big. Like, people are just shouting. Yeah, they're and big. Just, and it's just intense. And people are having mental breakdowns. Mm-hmm. And they're screaming in the middle of a room. And Mike Lee films are very much about the walls people put up. But it's just about the audience being able to see that there is a wall there and there's something not being said. Right. But but I feel like also, I mean, like in this, like in, in, you know, Life is Sweet, we get this, this confrontation between Nicola and her mother. Um, And and it's not, it's not that like, like what you're talking about with where it's like a shoehorned monologue of like, here's the backstory. It's like, Nicola didn't know that right. that she was on on the verge of death like mm-hmm. this is her mother telling her and and i feel like that is something that is present in at least at least the the films that i saw of of mike lee's like um I, I, I guess um, I guess just the one that that comes to mind just as another example would be uh happy go lucky where there's um there there's the the confrontation between um between Sally Hawkins and uh, the driving instructor Eddie Marson, Eddie, Eddie Marson, um, where there's oh, yeah. not so much like, oh, here's my backstory, but it's just like, okay, well, we're taking this like underlying tension between these two characters and we're dragging it out in the open and we're giving a name to mm-hmm. it. Um, Secrets but, and Lies has a similar climax. Yeah, which we'll get to maybe. Yeah, maybe. You know, the um, m- <laughs> mounting tension usually leads to like, like kind of like a, a satisfying catharsis. From right. the character, and there's usually, and there is usually like an explosion of feeling because it's been you know sort of buried for a long time for a lot of these people. But it's also not the it's it's also not the cliche explosion no. of emotion. Well, the, th- that, the thing about Mike Lee to. movies is because of his process, he can't really come up with I don't know, or can't or won't or doesn't um, come up with story structures that are very like carefully plotted. They aren't the kind of movie you see where you th- what information you get about the characters when is very specific. And it's like, and then here's the reveal at this point, which is going to lead her to do this. Mm-hmm. And then that is going to trigger him to do this. Um, because they are sort of built off of improvisation and not someone's, not a uh, screenwriter's whims, uh, 
sometimes they come and sometimes they don't. Like Mr. Turner is a movie where that doesn't really come. Um, he sort of holds no, not at he all. he has this wall around him that whole movie, and he sort of keeps it there. Yeah, there's a few people he lets in or whatever, but there's so much that he just that uh, what's the name J W Turner? Um, um, P W whatever Turner, whatever Mr. Turner Mr. I, Turner. It's, um, shit, that's fine. J M S J M S Turner. Like there's so much that J M S Turner is dealing with internally that he won't let anyone see, and he just never does. Um, And it's like, you could see if that process went a different way that there might have been that scene that existed. Or maybe they... Yeah, characters don't have typical arcs. Right. You know? And and that's what excites me about watching. Right. You don't know when it's coming or how. There's, yeah. I can really get out of a lot of movies. Like most movies I see, I can generally guess within the first 40 minutes how the rest of the movie is going to go just because I've seen a lot of movies and I know how things go. And if I get surprised, awesome. And if they do a good job but don't surprise me, that's still good. But like Mike Lee movies, I never know where things are going to end up. Um, yeah. Completely agreed. Um, yeah, and I, and I also think, like, like even though there will be these, like, blow-up moments, it's not like it necessarily leads to a resolution. Like, that's true. Like, like after the confrontation in Life is Sweet, you know, you, you see that, like, that, like, Nicola has become a bit closer to her mother. Like, like she has this moment of vulnerability where it's, like, she's, she's in her room and she's crying and she's allowing her mother to hold her, which you don't, you don't see in the rest of the, of the film between the two of them. Like, up to that moment, it's just conflict, conflict, conflict. And then it's sort of... Um, I, I think it ends with like her her and um, and Nat just sort of hanging out in their backyard, if I remember correctly. Um, but, you, you know, so, so she is allowing her family in but it's not you don't see where it's like there's not like like a like a neat button it's not like oh and then you see her go apply for a job or then oh you see her go talk to a therapist i do feel the implication is that there is a corner that has been turned and whether or not she's able to completely heal or whatever steps are going to be taken in that direction i I mean i mean yeah Yeah, she's finally accepting help i think i i I guess but i mean i'm just saying that i i think it's just so um i mean i mean with life is sweet specifically where it's just it's just like a lot um smaller of a step than you would see in another movie sure where it's like i mean where it's like there's still like a potential for backsliding and i feel like like there is such like like a warmth and and like a heart and like a belief in people to Mike Lee movies that you just sort of like trust that that character is going on to something better, but there's not a lot of like concrete proof, you know. Uh, I, right, it's the same with um with the ending of All or Nothing. It's yes. it, just because they finally have confronted the fact that they m- may not be compatible anymore, they may not love each other anymore. It, it, it the way it ends. It could it could go either way. You, right. you don't know if these two people are meant to be together. It's not like like you said. It doesn't offer a sense of resolution, even if they're finally vocalizing what they've been hiding yeah. for a while. Yeah, but I, I think it's just it's just like the, there's so much of like of, of like this you, you know this simmering and like this context of like oh these like other people in the characters' lives who are you know stressing them out or you know for whatever reason and then it, it's just sort of like it, it comes to that like that like big conflict which is always like just beautifully acted um yeah <laughs> like like i like i always feel like like um like when that scene comes like i i just like have my hand like like up to my throat and i'm just like oh my god it's so beautiful allison, allison steadman uh is a mike lee mike lee's uh wife in real life yeah not 
that regular of a cast member. Right, right. She's only been in... I mean, Life is Sweet is her only, like, big role. Yeah. In... Um, um, other than, I think, in the, the TV days, she did Abigail's Party. I right, think she was, right. like, the lead of that. Yeah. She's very good in that. Oh, Absolutely. I, 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 so, did you see Abigail's Party, Jim? Yes, I did. It's available on YouTube. Oh. So, people... A lot of his TV movies right are very easily pirated, I believe, on YouTube. So, yeah. you should probably check out YouTube if you're curious. Did, did you find... I have a thing for awkward dinner parties. Sure. <laughs> I just love that setting in general. I, so. I was just curious if Alison Steadman played, played like a similar character to the one that she plays in Life is Sweet because she's Ooh. so charming and she's so adorable. Not exactly. Not exactly. <laughs> no. She's, uh, I'd say, a little bit more of an intense character that uh, Mm. may or may may not affect her husband's mental stability at times. Gotcha. So it's, yeah, I think it's very different. Um, But we also have to acknowledge, too, like, this was, Life is Sweet is the first film that he collaborated on with uh, cinematographer Dick Pope. Absolutely, the Dick Pope. And, And good lord... I love me some Dick Pope. <laughs> Who doesn't? Um, it, yeah. it's, I feel like the Life is Sweet. Uh, the pre the movies he made before Life is Sweet they look fine. They don't. They're not very distinguished. Right. The one thing I like consistently through all of Mike Lee's films is that Mike Lee. Uh, this is I think part of his class consciousness. The size of people's homes is really important. He is like for sure. If you ever watched a movie and you're like, boy, how do they afford this apartment? The answer is. They needed to fit a camera crew in there, so they just gave the character a big apartment. Even though they're like a struggling artist, they give them this giant apartment because you need to be able to fit the lights and camera and everything. Um, Mike Lee is like, no, I'm going to smush them all in there. They're going to walk past the camera and they're going to be out of focus for a second because they have to scr- like scooch past the camera. But that's what life is like. That's like such an essential part. Part of the rehearsal process he actually rehearses in the environments that they shoot in. Mm. Um, he doesn't just go to like a yeah. There's something. There's something. There's something about the way he uses, yeah, minimal space, especially like you said within the walls of the home. It gives it gives the film like this immediacy and rhythm. Yes, of watching something unfold in like this in this incredible environment that you you become familiar with. Yeah. Like you know where the bedrooms. Like are. Like when you watch Vera Drake, the family having dinner, they're all around that tiny dinner table, yeah. and there's like so many of them. Yeah. Like the way he stages that's really interesting. Um, so like that is a consistent through his whole career. He's very interested in the spaces people live in. When you have a family. When you have a family dynamic where, like, one sibling is rich and the other isn't, you immediately know because as soon as you cut to a character and you see their living room and you can see, like, out the window of their door and you know they're not in an apartment, you're like, oh, this motherfucker yeah. has money. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, because I feel like I have a lot of days these days where I'm just, like, resenting all the, like, middle and upper class people in the world who have brought us to this where I'm just like, man, motherfucker, home, mo- uh, homeowners, fuck them. Like, uh, yeah, especially now that we, like, don't leave the apartment yeah, too often. Exactly. And it's like, oh, this place is yeah. kind of small. Some people have a really big <laughs> prison some people if one of them got sick could stay in that room you know like um but uh uh the dick pope this movie life is sweet is like a significant step forward in the looking of it yeah um yeah and i think even more so with the next film naked uh is very much 
where Mike Lee began to conceive of films visually, uh, especially in terms of color palette. Obviously, he works in the real world. Uh, later in his career, he would start to do more and more historical fiction, but for the most part, he works in contemporary England, contemporary London, or you know, Northern England, or whatever. So, in terms of set design, in terms of how things look, uh, he's limited by reality. Uh, I don't. I'm sure he doesn't consider himself limited, but it's just. The, it, yeah, they're not going to be outrageous looking movies right. because that would take the focus off the actors. But um, he did. But when you look at the color palettes, obviously, Another Year is a great example of this. Naked is a great example of this. Vera Drake is a really good example. He's very. Mm. He gets very expressive with color, like the sort of saturated bright colors of Happy Go Lucky are very prominent. Yeah. Um, and uh, Dick Pope. That's a very sunny movie. Yeah, yes. Dick Pope is a very uh, big part of that. Yeah, it, it seems like a really good collaboration. Mr. Turner also. Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean, just the, the the landscapes are so breathtaking. They find just like the perfect times and the and the perfect moments. To... And that, and that that actually does have an aesthetic challenge. Like a lot of the times, the visuals they can add to it. They can make the film more pleasant to watch as you're following these character stories. But they're not necessarily revealing things about the characters. But Mr. Mm-hmm. Turner is a film where it really does a good job of establishing. Like, of just bringing you back into that 19th century mindset and remembering, like, this is why painting was important to begin with, like, because people's yeah. lives didn't have this sort of art, like, they couldn't call to mind this. So the shot where the people are going to visit the gallery and they go into that darkened room and they have to wait there for yeah. two minutes and then they turn on the light <laughs> and let them go in. And as an audience, you've been doing the same thing. And that, like, the warm colors inside of that gallery are yeah. so breathtaking. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, no, even though I wasn't the biggest fan of Peter Lou, it's there's no denying his sure. cinematography um, is pretty breathtaking. But in that. I mean, I mean that, that that is an interesting point because yeah, the last two movies have been um, the historical, um, and and Peter Lou, I mean, completely leans into class consciousness. I, I, I mean, the, the whole focus of that movie. Oh, for is, sure. But that movie's like didactic in a way. His other work isn't, right? Um. I mean, I I don't think it would. I don't think it's as didactic as Vera Drake. Okay. Um, but <laughs> yeah. But it's also. I mean, it's more about. It, it 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 it's also very different. Where it's more about community than or or just sort of like it 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 abstracts its subject more than any of his other movies. Mm-hmm. Um, like I mean, and, and again, I mean, I saw Peter Liu, um, like it, it was a premiere, so it was. It's been a few years for me. Um, but I don't recall any any specific characters. I just sort of recall like groups of characters. Sure. Yeah. Um, no, that's definitely yeah, true. Yeah, and, and like it's less character focused. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, and part of it is just because, like, I mean, I mean, I, I was I was joking with Patrick before we started that like that like I was scared about doing this podcast because the cast of all these movies are so large. Uh-huh. But I mean, Peter Lou is like about crowds. It's about. Yeah. It's about yeah. gather. It's about a gathering, mm-hmm. like like it's about this massive gathering, and it's and it's about also um, like like the beginnings of um, of of people, you know, coming together and like and like raising class consciousness and trying to organize to like do something about economic inequality. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but but yeah, it's it's not like but the, like that's an idea that you don't necessarily have to be in touch with the current climate to. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it certainly speaks to the current climate, but I mean, it is very much steeped in its own historical moment, sure. which is early, early yeah. 19th century. Right. And, and But I'm like, you know, like that's, 
I feel like there are more socialist or democratic socialist movements now that those are ideas that are getting more steam on a on a more popular scale. Mm-hmm. But those are also like that's also he went to socialist summer camps when he was a child. Like that's that's <laughs> not like those were probably things that were always equally urgent for him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I seem to remember re- um, lo- looking at an, an interview with him where where. Um, they, they just brought up in the interview that, like, the Peterloo incident is not something that is widely taught in, in like, British schools mm-hmm. in history class the same way that, um, I don't know. I, I don't know if, if like, uh, Harper's Ferry is really talked about in American history classes. I, I don't I don't recall. Or, like, the, or like the Haymarket riots. Like, sure. like that's not discussed yeah. Yeah, in American history class. Yeah, in that school. Um, like, yeah, like, that's not something I learned about until I uh, was in, like, friggin' probably post-college um, but regardless, um, uh, but, uh, I think, oh, no, I, I was going to do a, I was like, it was going to be like a tortured segue. I yeah. might as well just say, let's talk about another year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just another year. Not, not unlike any other year before 2020, especially has just been like any other year, right? <laughs> well, I mean, you yeah. know. It's like it's like the film Another Year, and that it's really bleak. <laughs> it, it is like other years where there have been uh, pandemics. Yeah, nineteen. It's just another year, like nineteen twelve. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw this back in twenty eleven after I'd made my top ten list films of twenty ten, and uh, I can't. Did I? I don't even remember how I saw it, but I just remember. I, you know, I know. You know what? I do remember now. I went to the Landmark Century and saw mm-hmm. it because I'd heard nothing but raves about it. Uh, and I, it certainly, man, I think if you look back, Mike Lee might be Ebert's favorite. I don't wouldn't say his favorite director, but the one he's given the most four stars mm-hmm. to. I think. I think even Brian Talrico brought that up, and he was like, "Yeah, Mike Lee is is Ebert's boy." So uh, you know, around that time. I read his review for this, and I just, you know, uh, got over to the century and saw this, and I I fell in love with it. I that makes sense. It, Something it, that it, always strikes me about Ebert's Ebert's reviews, his written reviews at least, is he gets really hung up on little character details. Like to him, that makes a movie, yeah, and that's like what Mike Lee movies are made of. Yeah, and that's what I respond to the most, and it's certainly like just the portrayal of a very. Like patient and considerate husband wife team is not something you see. Like the, like they don't spit bile at right. one another. They're just they're just warm and and loving and caring and you I, know that and this and at the same time though I thought this is one of the best examinations of compassion fatigue yes. that I'd ever seen. Yes. Like I hadn't seen anything that captured that feeling that people who are very empathic experience. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. You know, it, it's funny what you were saying about like how how the central couple um who's um Ruth Sheen who's so good and and uh oh, yeah. and Jim Broadbent um where uh when the when the movie started, I think I was still sort of in like typical movie narrative mindset um and I was just like 
oh, he's probably going to cheat on her. Like, that's what I was expecting to happen over the course of the movie. Like, I forgot I was watching a Mike Lee movie for a second where <laughs> nothing happens. And I was like, he's going to he's gonna cheat on her. No, he's going to die. Like, I, I just, like, they were just There's too- some secret yeah, between like, the like two like they of them. Set up the, they set up the season, and you're like, oh, he has a year to live. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just, and they were just, like, they were just too goddamn cute together. And I was like, no, something terrible's going to happen. Well, it turns out what they're, what they're it's like, their warmth, the reason they're so warm is because it it is a source of uh, jealousy and envy yes. in everyone around them. And it's like, it turns out, it's about the flip side. It's not about like, well, at the end of the day, all we have is each other and you just gotta hold on to the people you love. It's actually like, okay, what if you can't hold on to people anymore? Yeah. What if the people that you w- desperately want to hold on to it's becoming clearer and clearer to you that they don't want to hold on to you. What if, like, everything that makes you need some- to be around people is exacerbated by seeing people who have it so good and have the opposite of your problem? Yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. <laughs> that final shot might be my favorite oh, final God. shot in all of Mike Lee's movies. Yeah, and, and, yeah and, and, on, and on the opposite, like, side of the spectrum, it's like, well, you know, you know what if it's, if it's someone... You, you, you like you care about enough where you really you know where it hurts you to see them in in pain and you really want them to you know to to thrive and and to develop but you just can't you just can't do it anymore and it's just like you you just you just in like stuck in a rut you know and and they're not you know <laughs> it's like he got he 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 made enough movie about labor issues so he made a movie about emotional labor issues <laughs> 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 He's part of the emotional labor party. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's um So I, this is a film, I guess again we should describe the uh the setup. It's a yeah. there's a central married couple played by Ruth Sheen who uh is in several of his films. She's really wonderful in High Hopes, um playing a somewhat uh similar character, um though she's more of a successful professional in this film. Yeah. Um and Jim Broadbent who is another Mike Lee regular and probably if you had to pick, like, if you had to pick, you know, the way, obviously it doesn't quite work with Mike Lee because he just works with massive ensembles and he keeps working with the same people and over and over. But if you have to pair an actor and director, De Niro, Scorsese style, like Jim Broadbent seems to be the best encapsulation of Mike Lee's thing. I think, I think he's neck and neck with Timothy Spall you, for you, and, Timothy's... and Leslie Man. Well, no, sure. no, no, I guess Leslie Manville, I mean, Leslie, Leslie Manville. Leslie Manville plays such different characters every time. It yeah, and, and she's, feel... she's usually just like shows yeah. up for like a scene or two, kills it and leaves. Yeah, like, this not... movie has the most Leslie Manville, I think. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Um, but uh, Jim Broadbent is, he has, he has, he, number one, he's just a fantastic actor. Number two, he has this like jovial like warmth to him. You see him and you want him to hug you. You see him and you like you want to be his friend. <laughs> um, and in this movie, he is that person. He is very warm. You know, he is very bemused, but he also you know he his patience has limits. Um, and he he is a successful geologist. Uh, he has sort of ascended in the ranks of. Um, a, you know, a legitimate. It's, the other thing about them is 
they have money, but neither of them have money through ways that Mike Lee or the audience would find distasteful. Like, right. they have money because she's a psychologist and he does urban planning. Like, right. and he wants to make the world yeah. a better place. Like, he wants to make London better with more trains and more, you know, like, yeah. like they, they are both people who are very capable and have noble aspirations who happen to find a way to pair those two things. Yeah. And that's, like, part of what makes them so enviable as people and why you can, like, get jealous of them. Yeah, it's like it's like they have, like, their, their urban garden garden plot and they're very eco-friendly but they haven't sold out it's not a right. sham it's not right. like they have that garden plot because that's a trendy thing to do it's like who they are yeah yeah but but also they're not like they're not dogmatic about it and oh they're just they're just so nice yeah um but it's like it's i do believe like it is easier to be nice it is easier to be like warm and open and gregarious yeah if you are comfortable if you are if you do have professional satisfaction if you do have you know a loved one who you know you don't have problems with if you you know if you aren't worried about you don't have to worry as much about money exactly exactly right so like i feel like part of the thing that's really interesting about this movie is that they have like privilege in the sense of being white or straight is not really the issue, but they have privilege in terms of social individual social interactions. Yeah. They are they don't they yeah. don't have to hide something. They don't have to hide some fundamental thing about how they operate day to day, which is not true of their friends. Right. Mm-hmm. Um so their friends have to put on that same happy face in their situation and when they, you know, meet up and stuff. But at the same time they want to be open and honest with them. So they like end up slipping it in in passive aggressive ways. That's Leslie Manville's character. Um, less so with uh, Peter Wright who plays Ken, um, who is sort of more, uh, given up on himself. Yeah. Uh, clearly yeah. is yeah. like a wild binge drinker. <laughs> um, yeah. there's a dinner scene with him where he is like, and it's and it's great because I this is something that always irks me about movies is actors in dinner scenes who just always have the same piece of food on the end of their fork the whole movie. Like I, I'm always just like, just eat that. What are you doing? Or like people who leave a bar during a scene and they still have like three quarters full beer because yeah. they were served it and then they had ninety seconds of a scene where they took two yeah. sips and then they left. Like um, drives he, me nuts. And he, like, he has a scene where he just puts away like three glasses of wine yeah. and two beers yeah. and he's having the food. It's just like. He's just a guy, but it's not in a, it's not in a Dionysian, like, you know, eat, drink, be merry, even though that's how he, he wants to, re- says that, though. yeah, he wants to present himself as that character, but it's like so clear that he is really empty yeah. and that he is just sort of chasing this because, because he has a more fundamental emptiness in his life. Yeah. Um, the interesting, I mean, I mean, kind of going back to what I was saying during Life is Sweet, where I feel like in a lot of these movies, um, there's, there's a theme that's sort of highlighted by, um, shared professions, um, by characters, um, a lot. Um, there's several characters in this film that are um, in a helping profession. So it's like Ruth is a is a counselor. Um, her her son Joe is is a lawyer who works with immigration cases. No, no, it's housing rights cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then Ken um, also works in social services. So kind of going back to that whole like like emotional labor and finding that balance between like helping people and setting appropriate boundaries. It is, is my favorite thing about Ruth Sheen's character. Yeah. Ruth Sheen's character, you watch her the whole movie. You get to see just visibly on her face as she doesn't necessarily. 
say what's on her mind at all times, you see her making the decisions of how much leniency she is going to give towards her friend's bad behavior. Leslie Manville's uh, character, uh, Mary. Yeah. Oh, and then also um, Karina Fernandez is an occupational therapist. Oh, that's true. So, yeah, she's she's got a shorter role. So but, you oh, see, God. like, Ruth Sheen getting very understanding that what Mary is going to do, uh, I should just say, Ruth Sheen's character is Jerry. Um, so you see Jerry... And Mary is Leslie Manville. And Le- Mary is Leslie Manville's character. So you see Jerry watch her friend who is in who is in a very desperate time but doesn't want to scare her. Doesn't want to be completely honest with it, but she wants to sort of like sneak it in. So she kind of sort of passively, aggressively says what's wrong with her. Um, and then when anyone brings up like, oh, so this is wrong, she always diminishes it immediately. Like she can't be honest. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that is just, yeah, a fear of putting off people by by like she's put off by herself and she doesn't want to put off other people by being herself because she she has this sort of insecurity at the center of her yeah um yeah i i kind of felt like um and and maybe because like like what you were saying about relating to nicola in life is sweet i really i really saw a lot of myself in mary yeah me too um oh yeah 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 where it's like it's like where she's she keeps bringing up like like her issues with her car and complaining about her car when she's upset, but it's like, is that really what's going on, Mary? I don't think that's really why you're upset. Yeah, that's just like the thing that yeah. you can say um, in a social situation. But you see, um, you see Jerry like her responses to these things. She is having a drink with her. They've known each other forever, but she is not just being indulgent in terms of. I know what you're, I know what you're, I know you're on your bullshit, Mary. Like, I know <laughs> that, like, this is all working away. Like, you started off this conversation just talking about, oh, maybe I'll get a garden or something. And then, like, but I know this is going towards why don't men love you? Why do, Why are you alone? Isn't it? Isn't it terrible that I'm alone and men don't love me? Like, and you see Jerry just watching her and, like, making calculate. You don't know it at first because you don't know the nature of the relationship. But, like, the whole movie, Jerry, who is a... Because she is a psychologist, like, her job is about boundaries. And Jerry has a very good understanding of what her emotional and personal boundaries are in a way that very few Mike Lee characters do. (laughs) Um, Yeah, she has a a self-awareness that, again, is 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 not something you normally see. In Mike Lee's movies, I, can't, I think that's what's really so refreshing. enviable about uh, about her and uh, Tom, play, who's Jim Broadbent's yeah. character. They're Tom and Jerry. Um, the thing that is so enviable about Tom and Jerry is because they even are self aware. They're like you. They're just like they're not angels. They're not like inhumanly mm-hmm. perfect. But you just look at them and you're like, why aren't you fucked up like I am? You know, <laughs> like that's what they're. That's always yeah, yeah. kind of what the yeah. other characters in the movie are doing. Um, pretty- but Mary, Mary is like. I, I like. I always worry that when I get in social situations with people, that I do make it about myself, or like I'm. Oh no! I'm like these sad things happen. Let me tell you about it, and then you turn into like this big Debbie Downer. Yeah. So in that regard, I I related to Mary as like the fear of becoming that to other people, right. and only being that to other people. Right. Uh, and, and certainly, I think underlying it is is, is issues with alcohol. I, I, th- I mean, I think she just you know yeah. lies on wine constantly throughout yeah and it, it, it's interesting that you bring that up because i feel like um 
I, I mean, that's something that that comes up in All or Nothing is um, is is like is like a problematic relationship with alcohol. But but for all that that characters in Mike Lee's movies drink, I feel like I feel like Leslie Manville's character in this movie is like one of the few who like where where you, where there is conveyed to the audience that it's like she she has like like a problem. Yeah, you know, I think so. Um, but but yeah, I, I think every time, like I mean, I mean, once the movie kind of got started, like every time she was going for a drink, like my like my heart kind of sank for her. Um, yeah, and and some like there were some people who did feel like her performance is too loud and too much, but I, I feel like they forget like sort of the final act of this movie where you know she does return to the house, yeah. and visit. Um, uh, is it? It's not Ronnie, but it's 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 yeah, Ronnie. Is, I guess the brother-in-law. It's, it's his brother. Oh, it's, it's, yeah. It, yeah, 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 yeah. Bro- and yeah, Ronnie. It, it, it's very quiet. Yes, like it, like they have these really quiet, subdued interactions. I mean, she seems like she's at her most desperate and sad, but. I, I never, I never got the argument that like it, it was like too, too big, you yeah. know, like she was too much. Yeah, and and it's and it's like she's not making it about her, like like she's asking him, like like he's he's recent, he's yeah. a recent widower, and and like and like she's sort of like like and I, I mean he's also this like northern England, you know, working class guy who just like like gives like one word answers because that's just who he is. But I, I mean, she is trying to get him to come out of his shell a bit, um, and it's not in this way where she has this like really um desperate um ill-advised anxiety provoking uh flirtation with uh with Jer- Tom and Jerry's son Joe um you know yeah. which is just like so you know you know and like intentionally cringy um but and then and then she, then she just has this like yeah really like sweet conversation with this older man who's like in in as much you know, in, in also in deep pain in the way that she is. It's all—it's almost like like she's around these people who are so well adjusted, and then she finally meets someone who's more of a of a kindred spirit. I I do think part of that though is that so this film is divided um, into seasons. It's a it's got sort of a four act structure. It starts at spring and it ends at winter, um, and I do think uh, it is autumn. Is the uh, is the section of the movie where she blows up at uh, Joe's girlfriend? Basically, like yeah. she basically has right. a really very hostile. She's yeah. already sort of been on thin ice uh, with Mary for for a bit now. You can kind of see that she's already a little bit on thin ice in spring when they're having their drink together, yeah. and then she gets too drunk when she goes over to their house, and like yeah. you can kind of see that Jerry and Tom, uh, Mary, uh, yeah, Jerry and Tom are just like uh, I don't know if this is worth doing again. I don't know if we're going to put her into bed again. Yeah. Um, this might be the last time that we do this. Um, we might need to set some new rules about Mary. Yeah. And, um, and then summer is when you see like her and Joe like, and have that like uncomfortable flirtation. flirtation. Um, and then fall is mm-hmm. where, uh, or autumn is where Joe comes home with his girlfriend who played by Karina Fernandez, who is the uh, dance instructor in happy go lucky and who is absolutely hysterical. She's another <laughs> one who she's, she's in a helping uh, yeah, she, uh, she's profession. An OT, yeah. She's an, she's an OT and she's funny and she's bubbly and she's charming. She almost feels like Sally Hawkins' character in Happy Go Lucky a yes. little bit. Um, yeah, for sure. And she is just another person where it's just like, oh, you're so fucking well adjusted. Especially like after spending a month watching Mike Lee movies, when those characters pop up, you're like, whoa, what's happening right now? <laughs> 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 um, 
And she uh, and Mary is just in a vulnerable place, and the fact that Joe has this like perfect girlfriend. Um, even though her idea of Joe and her having a relationship is preposterous, she has just created in her mind, like, oh, this will be fine. Like, then we're destined to, because we've known each other for so long. Yeah, like, since he was 10. Yeah, I know. It's like, Ugh. it's, it's, it's so desperate. And she's on the edge that, and she just has having a bad day because her, uh, because her car broke down or, yeah. or got broken into is the thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she just, and you can just, everyone in the fucking house can tell that she instantly hates uh, Katie, who is the uh, girlfriend character. She just instantly hates Katie, and everyone very early on kind of understands, by the way, she treats Joe like, why? What is going on? And it is such a humiliating thing. And again, nothing is said, and there isn't a big blow-up, there isn't a big confrontation. It's a Mike Lee movie, but because throughout this movie, even as early as spring, when she, the night after she gets too drunk and they have to put her to bed... As she's leaving, Joe is coming home to visit his parents, and they have this like brief interaction where just instantly you're like, Leslie Manville, what are you like? Yeah. Stop. Yeah. Like yeah, I, I, I don't. Do I know that. you want. No. I know you want. And at that point, you don't know if this is this a is this just a. It did it just occur to her because she's just throwing it out everywhere at this point out of desperation, or is this a long held crush? And then in summer when they have the sort of uh, outdoor garden party, like it, be, they have the the whole long scene together, and it becomes clear. That they have some history. You picked up that probably, uh, considering that she is a she is a very sexy woman. Like she's she's older now, yeah. and as the movie goes on, she gets less and less sexy because she looks more and more desperate. Yeah, and she's also younger, right, exactly younger yeah. than Jerry. So I w- so I was like, oh, maybe Joe had like an adolescent crush on her. It's maybe- almost certainly what's going on there, yeah. and and Joe indulges her flirting with him a little more than he should, and he knows he should, mm-hmm. but he there is just this look on his face where it's just like. You know, if I was 15 again, this would be blowing my fucking mind right now. Yeah. And let's see where this goes. Also, I kind of think that, that that's also just like like a, um, a, 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 a because he's also in a helping profession and, and, and he is younger. I, I think that also might just be where it's like he doesn't have the skill of navigating those boundaries that his mother does. Sure, that, that's probably yeah. that's probably true, too. But you do get a little uh, a little sense of pleasure the way he flirts back like. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't cross any lines. He he keeps things. Uh, he keeps things very kosher. But it's like you can tell that there is something there. And again, this is all part of Mike Lee's process. Is because that whole history does exist in both actors' minds. It's not yeah. like one of them was like, "Well, I was thinking, wouldn't it be interesting?" It's that they actually lived all those scenes together already. Yeah. yeah. Um. So they're to them, they're almost just like those are scenes that just weren't filmed. Um, yeah, like like there's um right. there's an interview with the cast on uh, the DVD, I guess, um, that we were watching, and, and Leslie Manville's talking about that process, and she brings up, um, you know, in in the last scene, how how she just has this like one brief mention of how you know she used to own a bar on on this Greek island, and you know how how she just like knows everything about that character, so she knows that that character's life, and even and in the movie she dismisses just, like, it with like. Oh, I oh, read, I read a bar. Waitress. Ha, ha. I was cocktail waitress. Yeah, but but like but like in the interview, which is like completely like after the movie's done, and I'm, I mean just like and just Leslie Manville is just being Leslie Manville. You can still see like the impact that 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 work, mm-hmm. you know, just doing that work has had on her. I mean, and I'm pretty like, sure she's instantly there. Like, I'm pretty sure the reason David Thewlis was never in another Mike Lee movie is because he has said multiple times like being Johnny is still with him and it kind of fucked him up sure uh, <laughs> like yeah 
I mean, it's like the, that very final shot too. You can tell it's like you can tell Leslie Manville's character, Mary is, is still thinking. Yeah. She's thinking about and that. And, and, She's thinking about a time in yeah. her life when she was younger and she did have endless possibilities in front of her. And that was probably exciting where she was in a foreign country and she's, you know, she's working in a bar and she's meeting all sorts of interesting people. And, you know, she's meeting men and she's probably in the prime <laughs> of her life and never more sexually attractive. And, yeah. like, you see all of those memories coursing through her in that final shot. It's sort of like the final shot exactly. of, like, a uh, portrait of a lady on fire or something like that. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Um, good, good call. Good and uh, so, anyway, so there's – so she has this, like, blow-up towards Katie, Joe's girlfriend, and – it, they jump forward in winter, and there's it, there's been a death that ends at a funeral. But like, you kind of get the idea that okay, Mary is done. She has basically made herself unwelcome yeah. in being so rude and hostile and being so inappropriate. Um, so when she does come back and she has that interaction with Ronnie, um, you know, you guys are talking about oh, you know, she's listening, she's asking about him and stuff. I think part of that is just like. She's already breaking a boundary by being there, and she's so afraid of um, what he might say to them about her behavior that she's trying to... Like, mm. she looks like someone who is trying to behave herself and not... Like, she's just basically doing everything she can to not break down and gush about her emotions again, even though that's more what she is inclined to do than ever, because she has less support than ever. And yeah. Has been lacking this spot, yeah. spot in life. That's what makes this movie so bleak and dark. Is she it also de- looks a mess? Like- yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, part of that, and I do want to say, um, I do think that the way Mike Lee color corrects the film uh, for each season, that you know, it's it's not hard to imagine what color schemes he might come up with for you know spring, winter, su- you know, summer, mm-hmm, fall. Mm-hmm. For winter, he kind of pushes it a little too far for my dire- direction, like the desaturated color look like that whole movie like that whole last section uh in the in the home just like it just looks like uh i don't i don't know it just it just looks like a corpse <laughs> like there's a shot where they're sitting at the kitchen table and you can see a... it's very cold because it's it's, it's very cold feeling well, right I, I think i think he pushes it a little too far like i think for me the shot of the bowl of fruit that had no color was like this is an aesthetic choice that almost feels too broad to be in a Mike Lee movie. I guess. I mean, I, I think that there's just so much grief in that portion. Like, I, I, mean, I mean, just thinking about, like, my own experiences, I, I feel like every time I've gone to a funeral, it's been in the winter and just, like, that can't actually be possible. Mm-hmm. But, but like, like every, every, like, funeral I'm thinking of that I've attended for, you know, like a friend or family member, I've lost, like... Like, my mind just puts mm-hmm. that in winter. That's interesting. It's always summer for me. Sure. I mean, it, it was literally, for the two major funerals I've been a part of, mm-hmm. uh, it was summer both times, so. Interesting. Uh, but uh, that's, fa- that's fair. That's that's obviously, you know, he's getting to an emotional truth there. Um, it's not a big complaint. I do, I just, it was, a, it was like, Mike Lee movies just feel so impeccable, and part of that is that he doesn't ever let style get in the way of anything. I have to wonder if that there is that it like... That out to me as a moment there. Oh, sorry. Um, I, I, I have to wonder if like with the other seasons that there was like like differences in color correction going on that were just more subtle. Well, I mean, there were. You could tell. Oh, like, okay. su- I mean, the summer well, party, like the garden looks absolutely gorgeous. You could tell. Okay. I can't <laughs> tell. <laughs> um, no, yeah. It's... Uh, I, I feel like... There's a couple shots in this. Again, uh, I feel like Mike Lee, he has adapted his style. It, 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 on the uh, cr- There's a Criterion Collection version of Mean Time, and they talk about 
how they worked for six months to develop the characters. And during the process... Six months? None of them... That's a long time. And and during that process, none of them knew what the movie would be about. So none of them knew who the lead would be. Like, it ended up sort of being uh, Tim Roth. But, like, at that time... No one like he, Mike Lee was so hands off in terms of directing things, in terms of like telling them where they're going to go. That you know that would like that was up in the air. Like who is the lead of this movie? We don't know yet. Um, I feel like he gets a little more hands on, and one of one of the things that is lost is um, when you watch like a Mister Turner uh, or a Vera Drake. Um, is they do feel a little less messy. Um, yeah, but and which is, those are more which, focused stories. Right, they're more focused stories, and the, I think the messiness is one of the key pleasing things. But the thing that is gained is his work with Dick Pope, and is his sort of renewed focus on how things look. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think Topsy Turvy is another movie that looks spectacular. Yeah, um, Topsy Turvy we haven't mentioned yet because Topsy Turvy is the only Mike Lee movie that is like almost all good feelings. <laughs> Oh my god! Oh man, I should have watched it. I was just a little intimidated by how long. It oh, was. it's a long one, but it's like it, it flies by because it's, it's so fun. It's yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. Topsy Turvy. I I almost wanted to to like really gush about that just because it's. Um. I I mean I I like the Mikado. I mean the Mikado is kind of a problematic fave for me. Um. So so just kind of like seeing a movie about its creation was just something that like I really you know cottoned to. Um, but also, I mean, I mean, just like they pick up on so much of the like details of being a stage actor. So it's so charming to see these like Victorian characters who are also like you know in the wings, like mouthing along with the people who are acting on Cause stage. Because you've been there. Because you, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, 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 just like, like the actors, like in their in their process of like putting a show together, just like do things that like actors are still doing backstage like it's clear you don't make movies the way mike lee makes movies unless you really love process unless you really love actors unless you have like a lot of faith in the transformative power of theater and of actors jobs like he you know he's the anti-hitchcock in that way where you know hitchcock viewed actors as cattle and as long as they said the lines in the uh, approximate emotion uh, with their face turned the exact right way, with their feet planted in the exact right spot so the light hit them correctly. He didn't give a fuck what they did. Yeah. Um, and Mike Lee just loves it. So, like, Topsy Turvy is just, like, this big gushing love letter to his profession and to his industry. Yeah. Um, and to all of the people he works with. And so Topsy Turvy, there's some, there's a couple harrowing details here and there. There's some sadness. There's some parts where you're like, oh, that's that's too bad. But, like, for the most part, that movie is just delightful. Yeah. Um, is it reflective of the filmmaking process? Like, him commenting I mean, his, a little bit on that, I mean, his filmmaking process is so, it's so much like his theatrical process. I'm sure it is. Yeah. But the thing that is, makes the way yeah. Gilbert and Sullivan work is not the way Mike Lee works. So, it is about Gilbert sure. and Sullivan's process. Um, but, I, so, I wouldn't necessarily say you watch it and you're like, oh, here is what he's saying about this part of his process. And he, like, it's not, I feel like Mr. Turner almost feels like more of a, uh, yeah, I was going to say that too. It's, actually, it's like, yeah. it's very atypical for Mike Lee to do like the self insert. I guess you could like look at certain characters, Jim Broadbent and Timothy Spall play and watch interviews with Mike Lee and be like, yeah, those are kind of Mike Lee esque characters, mm-hmm. but like he isn't an autobiographical, you know, there's autobiographical details in Vera Drake. There's clearly, 
a lot of personal feelings wrapped up in a lot of his movies, but he's not trying to tell his story. He's not interested in telling his story. Um, I feel like Mr. No, but I can, Mr. I can see Turner, Mr. Turner yeah. still being personal. Well, and, in that and way. specifically I mean, like he, what he it feels like to be an aging artist. Um, yeah. And looking around him. I mean, it's like his first like digital movie. The film landscape is changing around Mike Lee. Um, Mike Lee. I, okay, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say also, I, I think, I think um, th- there's a parallel between Mike Lee and Mr. Turner in the love that both of them have for England. Yeah. Um, but like, mm-hmm. there's like, e- even though, you know, Mike Lee is, is, has a very like leftist political ethos, which usually you would associate with like being critical of like patriotism. Mm-hmm. There is like a deep love for England and for you know that that culture and that place. I don't think he accepted his. I think it's an MBE. There's a lot of different sorts of members of the British order, uh, mm-hmm. but I think that's. I think he's an MBE. I don't think he accepted that ironically or anything. Oh yeah, no, and yeah, I think, and even if he is like like going to be critical of like you know Thatcherism or of you know you know like uh, like the class structure in England, like like there is still like like a deep like love and almost like romanticism of certain aspects of English life. Like, I mean, he's, he's had this long career and like, he's, has he ever made a a film that wasn't in like set in England? I don't think so. Uh, Mm, I don't think so either. That's a good point. Um, no, not not to my knowledge. I mean, I mean, you know, Uh, did he do transformers? Yes, he did Transformers. That was the one. Yeah. Transformers. It was a, that that was his cocaine phase, but we don't want to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, we don't talk about Mike Lee's cocaine <laughs> phase. Give him his dignity, please. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, so, like, Mr. Turner feels like, what does it feel like to be an aging artist? What does it feel like to know that the end is around the corner of the end of your career? I mean, he's in his 70s now. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I think and he's I, in his 80s. Is he in his 80s? I think so. Um, I, and I do want to say, like, I think, um, I don't exactly know when... It occurred to me. It, it feels like, obviously, doing this podcast is part of it. Oh, he's 77. But I think a big part of looking at a filmmaker's career should be looking at the financial realities that shape that career. Because film is an expensive medium. And if you approach every film as if sure. this is exactly what they wanted to make and how they wanted to make it, you're usually just not like looking at the realities of what filmmaking is like. Um, so like when we talk about Guy Madden movies, we talk about... How because they have such a small audience, um, and they have to fundamentally be very, very, very low budget. And that sort of shapes how what they are and how he has to work, how quickly he has to work at everything. When we talk about Anthony Mann, we talked about a guy who's, you know, his skills developed um, because he was working in these low budget uh, worlds where the scripts were so bad that he just had to figure out how to, like, ignore a script and make it better. And that's how his visual style was founded. When we're talking about Mike Lee, we're talking about one of the few filmmakers in history who kind of has been able to make what he wanted to make. I mean, there are plenty of projects that didn't get off the ground. I don't want to imply that he never had to struggle. Um, but, like, when you're talking about his TV movies, those are movies that are subsidized by the state. Um, those are movies that don't need to turn a profit. They're not looking at 
well, what did his last movie do? Okay, well, we're not going to do it this time. You know, though, uh, when you're talking about... And, you know, the reason he was able to get in that position with the BBC is because he was a renowned theater director. So, again, I don't want to imply that, like, sure. it was handed to him. It's the same way that one of the reasons Steven Spielberg has made so many great movies is because he gets top choice of all the greatest scripts <laughs> because and, and the highest budgets to, to achieve his vision. And the way he got there is by being an extremely talented filmmaker... So it's not to take away anything from Steven Spielberg. And same way, not taking anything away from Mike Lee, how he got there. But he is in a position where he has had like a 50-year career, basically, of being able to indulge this very idiosyncratic uh, idiosyncratic, uh, approach to art that produces works that are very uh, idiosyncratic and not marketable and consistently do that. Um, and make Mike Lee movies. But they still find their audience. Well, That's what's great. eventually, well, the thing is, they didn't have to find their audience for the first, like, 20 years of his career. It wasn't until Life yeah. is Sweet and then much more so with Naked. And then by the time Secrets and Lies came out, then he could just write his own ticket because at that point he had established himself as one of the premier film voices. And, and every Mike Lee movie thus became an event. You know, before Secrets and Lies, people are excited because the guy who made Naked is making this. And there are certain people who are, you know, clued in since High Hopes um, internationally. And there's certainly, in England, there are people who have followed his career, you know, the the whole way through. And who always knew he was this great. But in terms of, like, an international audience, uh, once he made Secrets and Lies and that won the Palme d'Or and got nominated for all kinds of Oscars, he kind of... And again... There's limits. Uh, he wanted to make Topsy Turvy even longer than it is, and the studio was like, <laughs> "The studio was like, please have mercy. We can't release a four-hour fucking movie about Gilbert and Sullivan." So I'm not saying like he never has to compromise for the market, but it is interesting that uh, he has been so relatively untouched um, um, by the realities of an industry that just sort of crushes most everyone else. Um, yeah. And and class, it's something I was. It's interesting. I'm watching this. I watched a couple other British movies. Um, I think in England, as Americans, I think in England the movies can seem more political because I, it feels to me. And obviously, I've never lived there. Uh, this is not necessarily out of any kind of firsthand experience. It feels like people are more upfront. It feels like in America, people are afraid to talk about politics because it's impolite. It's like almost like you would be talking about your sex life. You know, and I would <laughs> never like. My sister got me a tablet so I could have family video chats, which I'm not necessarily <laughs> excited about because it's like there's a lot of things that I just can't say to my family because of who they are politically. And frankly, all the feelings I ever have about Corona, which is obviously what everyone wants to talk about, like only the only thoughts I have are political. The only thoughts I have are, oh, for sure, well, this is exposing A, B, C, D, and E. And doesn't this make it so clear to you? Isn't it so abundantly obvious? When they're, like, having conversations, they're like, well, what's the solution? And I just want to, like, fucking scream, for-profit healthcare is a fucking crime! Like, like I can't do it, because there's something in me that says, hey, that's impolite. You don't want to make things awkward. You don't want to rock the boat. Um, just, just like, bite your lip and, and don't say anything. And I feel like in England, uh, people talk about class in a more realistic way in America, uh, a common uh, phrase is that uh, the lower class thinks of themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Like, everyone thinks their ticket <laughs> will come in any moment now. Like, that whole fucking bootstraps uh, American dream mentality is so toxic and so pervasive that yeah. that regularly people in the lower classes are voting against their self-interest. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because they don't see themselves as lower class. But it's interesting too because like in in Mike Lee movies you commonly have um people who I, I mean I mean it doesn't it, it, it's it's not like this this idea that that we as Americans have in our in our culture where it's like oh I started with nothing and now I'm you know a millionaire but it's definitely people who are upwardly mobile just mm-hmm. just through their own profession sure um so I I, I think I think for him at that that is where like a lot of the the contrast between like working class and middle class comes from in his movies you know it, on, on how that affects family members and how like having having an origin in one class and then a reality in another one like can affect one's identity and, and affect sort of one's sense of, of morals and, and can you know bring about all, all these feelings um, I mean I, I think that's because like Mike Lee is not interested in agit prop. Um, she sure. is really not interested in like uh, um, energizing uh, the working class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he's not interested in telling stories that ennoble them and like present them as you know as noble victims. Like he is interested sure. in depicting their humanity. And in fact, yeah. uh, apparently he had a lot of troubles early on in his career with the far left. I think at this point the Overton window has moved so far right that that's not really the <laughs> yeah, case anymore. Like, wow, Mike Lee. <laughs> but when you're talking when you're talking about the Thatcher era in England, a lot of the far left in England would look at Mike Lee movies and they would say, "Well, these 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 you know these these working class people you're depicting they're they're just bums. They just don't do anything. Mm-hmm. They're not you know they complain. They're nasty to each other. Like you're not ennobling them and." Obviously, that's like Mike Lee is just not interested in playing that game. I wonder about in something like uh, in Naked, where you know he's fleeing from Manchester to a, d- a different part of London, and just is there in, in like you know an implicit commentary on just the, yeah. I mean, I think he, I think he outright again resents people who do have their place in life and are you know financially stable or at least Johnny and Naked does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, no, absolutely. That's a big part of it because the first place he goes to is his ex-girlfriend who's living in London now from Manchester. Right. Um, and, you know, she doesn't feel at play at home in London. And, like, yeah, that's, that's definitely... Characters are class conscious and that mobility can build resentment. Um, and it's not... And Mike Lee is not so um, dogmatic that uh, he has to... All the... Vill- like... All the villains are upper class. All the heroes are lower class. Yeah, all the good right. people no, are, you know, please. like. Well, I, I, I feel like I feel like when you talk about like like who is a good person in a Mike Lee film, I think you talk about you, you, yeah, you're not talking about about someone who. It's already is, a very subjective conversation. Well, yeah, yeah, but I, I mean, I, I think I think the thread that I see is is sort of like people who don't talk about what their what their values are or what like what like philosophies they ascribe to it's like people who are actively doing things mm-hmm. to to help those around them so it's like you have like like the main couple in in high hopes where it's like yeah it's like it's like they go visit Karl Marx's grave and like and like they do have these like you know you know like political conversations but also it's like it's like they're they're the ones who actually care about like you know the elderly family member and like the the guy who who shows up to town and is completely lost and and it's like it's like they're actually mm-hmm. caring about about their community and I think um you know we we're talking before about how it's like there's a bit of a reflection between like the characters um like the main couple in high hopes and the main ca- and the main couple in another year and that that kind of 
value is also reflected where you have um, um, Tom's um, sister-in-law's funeral and like he and Jerry are the ones who are um, who are doing that like emotional caretaking where it's like they see people at the funeral who it's like who they don't they don't know from Adam and it's like instead of just sticking with the family they go over and they welcome them and, and you know they thank them for coming to and they invite them over to the house and you know, you know they, they bought the food that's yeah, in the house yeah and- exactly and it's, it's like they, they know like like th- like there's just this this sense of like this is what my community needs and and someone has to provide it and I'm someone and I can provide it. I, I think I think in Vera Drake, you know, you know, that's kind of kind of I mean I mean that's probably gonna be like like you know, like like we said before, it's kind of kind of the most um straightforward in terms of like like asking like like what a moral thing to do is in in Mike Lee's movies and you just have this woman who is like like disregarding like social structure like in terms of norms and in terms of law and she's saying these people need my help and I'm right. going to help them. Birth yeah. control is necessary and I am going to help them. Yeah. She's thinking free of charge and but even yeah. even the uh, person who hooks her up with the other people is not charging nearly as much as the official like sort of yeah, that, gray yeah. market channels in the medical community are charging. Yeah, 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 that's right. You do see, you do see the um, S- Sally Hawkins character, um, who's this like upper class woman who also accesses an abortion through a more like yeah, quote unquote. Um, well, I guess I guess it is technically safer because she's actually going to a doctor. But but yeah, but like, like the doctor's only helping her in this way because, because she, she has the money. Yeah, because she has like a hundred quid as opposed to the two quid right. that. Um, that Vera's hookup is is charging their their clients. Yeah. So. So um, I I do want to talk about naked um, briefly. Uh, if, oh, does anyone else boy. have anything specifically they want to talk about another year? No, it's great. No, yeah. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> see another year. So yeah, naked is a movie it. that we haven't really talked about much. It's probably if not his most well respected. It's certainly one of them, and it, it certainly I think it was the movie that catapulted him. Um, into international acclaim, and I think it's his highest rated on Letterbox. Yeah, it's definitely his most seen on Letterbox. It's a movie that it sort of stands as an outlier, um, and it's a movie, and it's outlier for me as well because it's the only Mike Lee movie I don't like. In fact, I hate it. Um, so I don't necessarily want to like go on a long screen or like debate people who like it. I it's um, I just there, there are uh, certain things I do want to uh, read a. Uh, email that we got from uh, our past guest, Bill Ackerman. Um, I haven't seen... This is from Bill Ackerman. I haven't seen everything Mike Lee's done. Maybe 13 feature-length works and some scattered shorts. Naked might still be my favorite, although it's always good stood apart from the rest. I wondered if I'd been recalling it through rose-colored glasses after Patrick reviewed it. I reviewed it on Letterboxd. Uh, I'd wondered, going back to it this time, maybe it was Lee's Taxi Driver or Clockwork Orange, a controversial hit that both appeals and repels because how it approaches young male anti-hero. Did seeing it at 19 make me forever blind to its faults? If so many of Lee's classics deal with themes of family, of community, what the hell was this portrait of a chatty conspiracy theorist making a nuisance of himself doing in the mix? Watching again this week after rewatching High Hope's Life is Sweet, Secrets and Lies in Another Year, I think still think Naked is one I love most, even though it continues to feel like a major outlier. I think it's... Just that I find Johnny and Sophie so funny and compelling, and many scenes possess a kind of tension I like. Humor is so subjective. For me, this is by far Mike Lee's funniest movie. I don't go to the films for their visual, his films for their visual beauty, but again, for me, this is his most aesthetically pleasing work. Hold on, just a moment. Da-da, we can 
edit this down. I found Allison Chitty's set design and her use of color, like the apartment, the office space, quite striking. It was her idea to have the night watchman guarding the empty space. While the film isn't really focused on the homelessness per se, I thought it was symbolism. Maybe it's too heavy-handed, but it works for me. Andrew Dixon's harping cello score is one of the most haunting of Lee's soundtracks. I think that all the style helps carry the elements that divide, even as the film's supporters, like the scenes with the smug rapist landlord. So I do want to say... I totally agree. I think this is Mike Lee's best-looking movie. I love the score. It's Mike Lee's scores kind of only function to transition you from one scene to another. He doesn't really under uh, underplay. Uh, he doesn't really underscore uh, actual dramatic moments with music, except in this movie. Um, this is like the one movie where you would listen to it and be like, "Oh, you noticed the score." Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, uh, the set design is great. I think the whole sequence with the Night Watchman is really good, and it's the only sequence in the movie I think is really good. That's my favorite um, moment in the entire film, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's it's, uh, it's you know, and it, it, <laughs> again, total Jim Nip because like to me, those kinds of conversations are the kind that you would hear in something like Waking Life or Slacker. You know, the, 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 the interactions he has with the doorman are very, very existential. So uh, for me, the thing about Waking Life and Slacker that I like is what the conversations say about the people having them. I don't necessarily care about the topics at hand. Some are more interesting than others, but mostly I just like what it says about the people who are having those conversations. Sure. Um, so here's the thing for me with Naked. I... And I, and I want to say, like, right out, like, if you haven't seen Naked, um, a lot of the complaints I have, you might say, oh, that movie's problematic, and then you dismiss it. And I want to say, like, there are a lot of female film critics who do not find this movie sexist or misogynist in any way. There are a lot of, you know, really smart people, both when the movie came out and now, who uh, who are very clued into these things, more so than me, and say, no, that's this movie is is not offensive in that way. So, like, I don't want you to take my word as, like, a definitive feminist take on Naked or anything like that. Um, so, for me, the thing about Naked is Mike Lee's thing falls apart if you can't buy it. If it doesn't feel real, then it doesn't feel like anything. Um, and Naked, uh, there's a lot I find interesting um, about it, and there's a lot that really works. But at the end of the day, it falls apart because I just don't buy it. And the thing I don't buy is that Johnny, who, as the movie starts off, he has not, he looks awful. Like he, his, his, uh, his beard is all grown out and gross and he hasn't showered in six days and he just looks a mess. He encounters uh, many women in this movie and every, nearly every single woman in this movie invites him into their life and most of them have sex with him over like a 48 hour period and it's one of those things where the first time it happened it opens with a with a rape it opens with a sex scene that turns into a rape There, it's, it starts off as willing and she says stop and he doesn't and until he, she actually physically fights him off so like that is like right off the bat um, like he is not a good person, and I don't think the movie as made is trying to sell you on him as a good person. So I don't want to say like, oh, it's a like the main character is uh, a abhorrent. So of course the movie is too. Like his morals as the movie's morals, obviously not. Like that's not the way Mike Lee works. That's not the way the film on its own works. That's not my take. But the thing about the movie is the first person he runs into. She's just kind of sad and upset. It's the roommate of his ex-girlfriend. And she gets sort of taken in by 
his verbosity. I personally do not find anything he says funny. I think he's very obnoxious. He's sort of like the annoying little brother who just everything you say, he goes, I know you are. What do I like every little word that anyone says he flips on them, but it's never in a, it's like sometimes it's in a cutting way, but often it's just in a very childish way. So one of the things that people say about this movie that I just totally disagree with is that it's funny. Like I just find him very obnoxious. I don't find those conversations entertaining in any way. The things he says, I don't buy him as saying them for any other reason other than to lash out at people. So, like, that's just... Those scenes are not entertaining to me. But more importantly, every single woman in this movie gets, like, drawn into his orbit and then, like, sleeps with him and invites him in. And it's one of those things where if you can understand his ex-girlfriend... So, this, because of the way likely works, every single character has a reason for the way they're acting, the way they're acting. Like, I have faith in that. I don't think that he ditched that for this movie, as much of an outlier this is in his filmography. I believe that everyone who is working and made the film understood why all of these women individually, like, let this terribly smelling, ugly, super abrasive, irritating, just angry, nasty guy into their lives immediately. Like even the waitress in the, like who he's just harassing the whole movie. Um, like he doesn't even really put the moves on her. There's a little bit of sweetness that he'll lay on with some characters or whatever, but like with her, he's just being a dick the whole time. And then she lets him into her apartment or the place she's house sitting in. And it's one of those things where individually, probably all those characters make sense, but the sheer odds of him running into that percentage of women who respond to him in that way over the course of 48 hours is just so preposterous. And I think it's actually, like, I was thinking about it a lot because obviously this stuck with my craw, this movie that everyone else loves from a director that I love and I hate. And I think it's a limitation of Mike Lee's process, which is he has to have the characters have scenes together and you're not going to go through that whole process to have a scene where he harasses someone and she says, fuck off and leaves. So by principle every character has to be the kind of person who would stick around the other character and i think it ends up biasing the movie towards a certain kind of person who keeps popping up in this film and this film is about abusive men and about how abusive men get away with being abusive and how they're able to deflect and they're able to uh sort of railroad women and the way women don't feel comfortable standing up for themselves. And so like, I think the movie is honestly trying to tackle that. I think it just does a poor job because when you look at it overall, the fact that like the sort of evil landlord character, who I think is the only character in a Mike Lee movie, maybe other than Timothy Spall in life is sweet, but even life is sweet made more sense to me. Like that character just feels phony. Like that character feels like an invention. Like, that character feels like he came off of a weird psychological thriller. The, uh, <laughs> like, um, and <laughs> the way, like, he is, like, he's getting a massage from a woman who fucking hates him. Like, she's massaging him, and she does not want to be there. And it's this situation where it's like, of course she doesn't leave because she's at work, and she doesn't want to complain because then one of her bosses is like, what are you talking about? He's one of her best customers. So, of course, she's there. But he's like, do you think women like being raped? And then later, it cuts to them, and they're at dinner. And it's like, well, why the fuck would she be at dinner with this guy? She fucking hates him. And and again, probably that actor had a reason for that to exist, but we, the audience, don't get it. And it's just over and over again that happens, and it just it totally pulls apart the movie. So not only do I not find the movie funny, which is purely subjective, it's, it's not... I don't find it witty. I don't think... I'll, and I think part of that is, again, the limitation of if you're a screenwriter 
and you're stopping to think of dialogue, you're, it's a lot easier to come up with a call and response that's like, that's the way clever dialogue is written. But when you're improvising it, you kind of have to do the thing that, uh, um, what's the actor's name? Uh, Dulles? Yeah. Uh, David, Dulles, David, David Dulles. Dulles, yeah. You have to kind of do the thing David Dulles does where he's just like, it's just like really feeble wordplay, but he just puts some stank on it, but it's like not actually getting to the heart of anything. Like occasionally that happens, mm. but a lot of what he says is just like, okay, this pack of descending pachyderms. Like he's just using the big word for a thing. Um, and I just find that really obnoxious. So I don't think the movie, and I do want to say my thought was they were going for a thing and the way Mike Lee works it just didn't come off this way. Um, and for whatever reason, it came off that way for everyone else. But for me, they just, they were had good intentions. Um, they just, through the method or whatever, it didn't work. But then there are a couple quotes when I was reading interviews with Mike Lee that I want to read that makes me think maybe it was like fundamentally misguided. There are things that Mike Lee says about the character that make me think, actually, maybe he is coming from it from a very bad place. So let me, not a very, but, but a, a misguided place. So... Um, it, let's see. This is a uh, review. This is a from an article from the Washington Post. So again, this is the type of interview that you'll see in newspapers, where it's a piece about Mike Lee that has quotes from him that were taken from the interview, but it's not verbatim. So this may be out of context. I don't necessarily want to misrepresent anything, but um, I'll call. Lee says, I'll, call I'll call up Mike Lee, and you know we'll get the yeah, exact yeah. quote. There's another kind of reaction which is annoyed by the film because it shows women being weak. Why aren't women shown more positively? All that stuff. To be honest, I feel that's kind of naive. The film plainly is neither pornographic nor a celebration of male dominance. I would also, and then here's the important part. I would also question how much rape there actually is in the film. I would argue that whilst in no way obviously does one condone any kind of rape, every situation that's shown is of people who are there by choice for whatever sad reasons. That is fundamentally untrue. Um... There are people who are not there by choice. There are people who are being held against their will. Um, towards the end, when it gets really bad, there are people who do not feel safe leaving, and it's their own home, and they don't have any recourse because they don't feel safe calling the police. So, like, that take from Mike Lee says to me that maybe he thinks that if someone initiates sex and then says stop, then it doesn't count as rape. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to, like, throw too much interpretation, but that is just something when he's talking about his process making this movie... I like find fundamentally sort of uh, uh, objectable. Um, so then here's another thing that Mike Lee says about David Thewlis's character, which when I was watching the movie, I did not think that this is how he felt. And then reading this, this makes me like the movie even less. Um, I apologize. Let me just a moment. There we go. As you know, I go to considerable lengths to make sure that when we film, we're thinking of some kind of actual emotion. The tension's really there, but I've tried to construct it to force you to confront your own responses. The way I set Johnny up to start is in the worst possible light, so that you've got to come to terms with the fact that he's actually a good guy. So if Mike Lee believes that Johnny is actually a good guy, then like, no, dude, you are so fucking far off. And like, if that's the position of the movie, like that makes me want to revisit it like even less kindly because if you like look at the things that Johnny does in that movie and you think oh he's a good guy like he's just upset like no fuck off like I just I can't take that um so the reason it didn't work for me the first time is just I found it wildly unbelievable and not entertaining outside of that interesting scene with him and the night watchman um which ends far too soon 
I was kind of hoping the rest of the movie would be him in the Night Watchman. Um, but then, like, reading that stuff made me think, like, uh, you know, he's... <laughs> Mike Lee's old and it's 1993. Like, maybe he just has bad ideas about gender politics and shit like that. I, I, I wouldn't uh, disagree with that. I think that's very possible. Um, and I don't disagree with your take necessarily. I just have a very different reaction to watching it. I I find it to be this incredibly energetic existential tragic comedy of sorts that's like revolving around this abusive bipolar cockroach you know and <laughs> like like i i, I normally like uh, like to me it's almost you know an incredibly nihilistic experience and it's not very pleasurable to watch throughout the entire way but i find david thulis to be such a such a force of nature in this movie like it, it reminded me of um, of Damian Lewis in Keen or Richard E. Grant in With Nail and I, where they're 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 they're, they're just these sort of manic. Uh, no, I wouldn't say sociopaths, but they're 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 clearly well. Okay, well, definitely, I would. I think Johnny is. Yeah, I'd say the other ones not so much, but Johnny is definitely a sociopath. But I just mean like they are all struggling with some sort of mental illness that they're not addressing. You know, I to me like the whole thing with the with the Night Watchman, a lot of it is is indicative of schizophrenia. It's like the word salad, the way he's trying to make all these connections. I've heard these conversations come out of 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 you know people that I've interacted with that's that are undiagnosed. And to me this is like, you know, a Homer like odyssey of this, you know, self destructive character. You know, it's to where it's like I'm I'm not looking for the reality that I normally would in, in, in I don't know why you end the movie I don't know why you end the movie that way though if that's how if that's the kind of character you're telling a story about I think he's just meant Where, to go on I'd like again like you think maybe he you know because like I actually buy the fact that a you know a woman found him charming at one point because she did stay with him for a year yeah you know yeah absolutely I mean you, you you can see how like there are all sorts of people who are in abusive relationships who find themselves there for whatever reason, like the, it's not that any individual person could be there. It's that it's that such a high percentage of all the women in this movie are that that then it becomes sort of a, a different thing. Yeah, no, I, I can I can understand that, but I mean I I do struggle. It's sort of like the thing with uh, Twelve Angry Men, uh, where it's like any individual piece of evidence you can you can uh, have a, a reasonable doubt about. But the total accumulation of all of that evidence existing is the thing that you can't have a reasonable doubt about. It's the sort of thing where, yeah, like any individual character, you can understand it. But it's like it starts to paint a picture of a worldview of this is the way women behave. And that's when it's just like I, I do believe that it's just a limitation of and there was a there's some other story. Um, I forget the name of the actor uh, we were just talking about who plays Katie in another year, but she was telling a story about Happy Go Lucky. About she was working with Happy Go Lucky. She was working on that process, and uh, Mike Lee came to her and said, "We kind of have to restart because no one, your character is so so annoying. No one wants to be around them, or like your. I don't know if it was annoying or toxic or what the nature but, but of the in, character in was. In the improv, none of the other characters in the wanted to continue a relationship. With right. So there was no longer a place for her, like in the story, because none of those characters would be around them." And so she had to come up with a new character. And I can see the sort of thing where it's like, 
you start off as a character who's dealing with Johnny, and if your inclination as a character dealing with Johnny is, all right, fuck off, I'm leaving, well, that's that's kind of a hole in our process. We can't really do anything with that. Yeah, um, and some, so, of the, some of the interactions here do kind of remind me a little bit like a, a, a crueler Hal Hartley, because like a lot of these characters are kind of disaffected at times. You know, if, if if the argument is that it's not supposed to be realistic psychologically in the way that the that no other Mike Lee movie is, if your argument is like, yes, I don't buy it either. That's because it's not trying to take place in the real world. Like, I could start to buy that. It wouldn't make me like the movie at all. But like, I could sure. start to buy that. But I don't think that that is what Mike Lee is doing in that movie. And I I I, I, mean, I, I do agree mm-hmm. though that the 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 Jeremy Sebastian landlord character is almost like Patrick Bateman or something. He's just right. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think this character was necessary in this story at all. So that's what keeps it from being a masterpiece in my mind. I just don't like, I don't like spending time with that character. I don't see the point. He's just like this walking apocalypse and I don't quite get why he's there. So I agree with that. Um, I, I will say, kind of going back to, to the Mike Lee quote about um, how the movie makes you examine your own reactions to Johnny, um, as speaking speaking as, as someone who uh, has PTSD, um, I had to tap out about half an hour in just for my own self-care. Um, call me crazy, I draw the line at like three rapes in a movie. Sure. Um, you know. So, but but I, you know, I I wanted to, and, and I mean, I mean, Patrick did kind of let me know going in, um, you know, the the content, but I at least wanted to to you know give it a, give it a shot. Um, so, you didn't so get I, to see I the scene with the Night Watchman, which you did, which you did like quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and the, I mean, I will say, like, like, yeah, I watched up like basically um, after the scene of the Night Watchman where. Uh, where Johnny goes across the street to the woman that they're that they're sort of peeping at, and then has the interaction with her, and then I was like, oh, okay, and we're done. Um, and and I will say I did like the movie more than I was expecting to. Um, the aesthetic and the, um, the the like that really drew me in. Um, Certainly, it has an energy different than yeah, yeah, and, and, and I and I and I have to wonder if part of it was just because like that was a, of this like Mike Lee binge of the last like week and a half, um, like that's the last movie I saw, so it did like really stand out, and it was and it did almost seem like oh this like te- this like flight of fancy almost it's like Mike Lee grimdark, it's just like so different from like the other movies, so I think maybe that's sort of what drew me in a little more was where it's like oh there is this more like stylized um rhythm and way of speaking um that that's just that was just novel to me at at you know like in the context of having watched his more other more realistic movies so so that makes me think that like maybe he was going for something maybe not like unrealistic but maybe more like like heightened yeah and maybe heightened, more it's, where it's not like for sure where yeah where it's not like it's not like oh you know we're, we're maybe like like still building a character but you know maybe just like like it, like, I, I and again, like I don't know. This is just like me, me theorizing. Maybe just sort of like having the actors who played those women focus on like, like, like what is it that would you know have you like respond this way in this interaction? You, you know, you know that would you know have you like like see this this guy and like invite him in and like like maybe like like looking at that, but. 
yeah, I still don't think I'm going to finish the movie. <laughs> yeah, I, um, can, I, I can understand that reaction. I totally. do want to say, like, I think I think the the other limitation of Mike Lee's thing is that there are certain topics that I think I don't think there's any topic that you can't make art about. I don't think that there's no reason that there are ways in which the world is fucked up that art shouldn't be allowed to be fucked up. Like, I don't think that you can't make a movie about sexual assault or about the people or abusive men or the people who do it and why and how. Like, I think the problem with Mike Lee's approach is when you are wielding those topics, because it is so common and it can be so triggering. And again, this is 1993. The discourse was sort of in a different place regarding all this. Mm -hmm. Um, Like... I do think you have to be extremely careful about how and why you do it. And I think there is something about Mike Lee's approach that can't be extremely careful about that sort of thing. Because it just sort of goes where it's going to go. And given that this is such an outlier, it wouldn't surprise me if he did put more of... uh, If he did, like, put his hand down more in terms of shaping where it would go or whatever. But it just... It's... He's too hands-off as a... As a filmmaker, as a storyteller, I should say, not as a filmmaker, not as uh, some as a writer of characters or anything, but as someone who's telling stories, he is too hands off about structure and of you know events and stuff to tackle this sort of subject um, with the delicacy that I would want to see it be tackled. Well, that makes complete sense to me. I still, it, it's it's weird that I I rewatched recently. Um, because we lost Stuart Gordon, uh, I rewatched Edmund, and that's another movie with a really. That's hard... a very similar movie that I also hate. I know, isn't it weird? Like I was watching this movie, going, "This is just a- another guy going on like this odyssey and being horrible to all races and and women and just like I don't know the point of it." But Edmund I, I, ca- I go kind, back. Edmund to it, is though. kind of like a nastier version of falling down, where it's not as clear that Michael Douglas is the villain. Yeah, yeah, no, um, for I, sure. I, I, I was thinking when I was watching when I watched Naked, I was like, oh, this is where the softies come from. This is uh, this is uncut yeah, gems. This is yeah. good times. <laughs> the thing about those movies is, I think they're extremely funny. So this is probably just a different again humor. You you have so to subjective. admit at least that David Thewlis is pretty incredible. Right. It's, I, I, I don't, I don't. I'm not a person who views uh, a technical challenge, uh, such as his sort of hyper motor mouth dialogue. Like it is very hard to give that performance. I do not have to say the performance is incredible because I don't believe it's in service of anything good. It's like saying I have to admit that Joaquin Phoenix is incredible in The Joker because he gives a very like extremely detailed physical performance but it's like but there's no psychology there and in service of what and the same way i don't think johnny is deep i don't think johnny is that complicated i feel like there are people like him all over the place um and at least based on what we actually like everything mike lee and again i I read a book of interviews about mike lee and mike lee a book of interviews about mike lee is uh is with mike lee is probably less uh successful than uh pretty much any other filmmaker because he hates answering questions about his work i got that impression he, too yeah he wants stuff to stand for himself so his responses don't necessarily need to line up one in one with what he actually felt when making of it i understand that artists when they're being interviewed they are selling a movie they are not necessarily trying to dive deep into their soul so again like i want to like because i do think 
people who made this movie made this movie thinking that they were doing this justice and it came out and then most people including women it's not like well the male critic establishment liked it like there are two different female film critics for the village voice who both said it was like the film of the year so like this is this is you know again I don't want to try to for anyone who hasn't seen it I don't want anyone to just take my word as like the default feminist position or anything like that. But although you may, you might want to take a, a content warning into consideration. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. I, agree, I mean, I, I, feel, I feel like we've talked about it enough to. Sure. Oh yeah. Yes, but it, it is like to, it's not just a hard scene. It is like the entire movie is it. Yeah. Is like just really yeah. bad verbal abuse and and yeah. sexual assault. Yeah. yeah. But but I, I, mean, um, I, but I was going to say is um, Mike Lee. He talks a lot about the tragedy of Johnny being that Johnny is so smart and that um, because things are so bad in England, he can't find a position worth his intelligence. And, like, to me, if that is your tragedy, if that's your takeaway, then, like, if that's the character that you feel sorry for, then, like, again, you're just misguided. Um, And that's, again, all the caveats I gave about Mike Lee interviews or whatever. Like, it's there's just all these little things about this movie that I think... The people who made this were just doing the wrong thing. And they did the wrong thing extremely well, but it was the wrong thing. And I think David Thewlis uh, worked extremely hard and dug extremely deep and gave a really amazing physical performance. And I got nothing out of it. And I hated watching him work. And I didn't think Johnny was an interesting character. And it didn't make the movie good. So I can't admit that David Thewlis gives a great performance. Okay, we can disagree there. Um, I'd, I'd like to, uh, quickly bring up, it's weird because like, I'm sorry, I, that was way more about naked than I wanted to, but I just wanted to like give it its due because I do think it's important in the Mike Lee canon. I agree. Sorry. I I totally agree. And, uh, one that sort of has gotten buried, I would say is all or nothing. And that's, and that's not to be confused with the straight to video sequel, bring it on all or nothing. Uh, are you sure? I mean, I mean, prime brings up. Uh, the Bring It On sequel first. Oh my god! Maybe, now, now I want to see a Mike Lee Bring It On movie. I, I think hey, Mike Lee is definitely one of those directors who has such a unique voice. You can just like sort of extrapolate. Like, what would Mike Lee's Jurassic Park look like? What would Mike Lee's Cheerleader movie look like? What would and like every time it's in like this really narrow London row house. <laughs> well, I responded to this one. Yeah, I responded to this one big time because I've always wanted to set a film in like the same apartment complex. So in that regard, watching these different lives intersect throughout kind of reminded me a little bit of the Florida Project. Uh, and in, in ways like I, we get to know individual characters and certainly their eccentricities, but there's also like late in the film this almost like Bergman-esque intense climactic confrontation between a wife and a husband uh, the wife played by Leslie Manville and the husband played by Timothy Spall. And if you're fans of both of those actors, boy, are you in for a treat? Cause oh Holy cow. So they're, they're seen together towards the end of this is, is just right up there with some of the best Mike Lee moments in, in, his, in his, in his entire career, I think. And, you know, again, it is about economic hardship and an ability to articulate your emotions and how people have lost hope for a better life. Uh, it, it's not one like I can actively say is distinguishable from all the other Mike Lee movies because I do think there are echoes of his previous work and, and certainly things like Secrets and Lies. But um, you, you get to see Leslie Manville and Timothy Spall play characters they haven't played before, and they're very different. And, oh my gosh, who's the, who's the, who's the son in this? He's now a famous... 
James Corden. James Corden. I I was like, oh my god, that was nuts to see him in this in this movie uh, playing that particular role. And I think so, singing in a car hadn't even yet occurred to him. I know exactly. But no, I think you know it, it's it's up there with some of his more accomplished work. I mean, you got it, it gets really intense and powerful when characters finally you know pour out their 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 fears and their love for one another, even though that love may not be unconditional. It's still just a really satisfying you know two hours spent with different characters and great actors. That uh, I, I really really dug this particular film, and more people should seek it out. Yeah, I, I, I actually um, watched it because I'm working from home right now. I watched it over the course of uh, yesterday's lunch break and today's lunch break. Um, and yeah, I, I really, I really, um, I, I wouldn't say it's one of my, it's one of my favorites. Like, I, I, I think that some of the, um, so some of the sort of subplot strings felt a little too, um, like, like they just went places and then just sort of stopped in a way that wasn't as um as like satisfying or as acceptable at, to me as other Mike Lee movies like the whole sure. thing with like Sally Hawkins yeah that one's the least satisfying the guy who's kind of stalking her yeah and then and then it just sort of ends like like I didn't I didn't really care for that um but yeah I mean I, I will agree with you I I think I think the the sort of central couple that we have um like yeah Timothy Spall and Leslie Manville just do an incredible job with their roles like they're Oh god, they just broke my heart, both of them. Yeah, for sure. Ah! I didn't see it. Oh. <laughs> is, um, is there one more real quick before we start yeah. to wrap things up? Is there one more from you yeah. guys? Oh yeah, I just wanted to um mention Secrets and Lies really Secrets quick. And lies? <laughs> yeah! Um that was the that was the first Mike Lee film I ever saw. Same, um, and same. I did, I did write about it um for my my um, on indefinite hiatus blog, consistent panda bear shape about Timothy Spall's character, and I think it's just, um, yeah, I, I, for for me, that's just like sort of the height of tying in a lot of um, what we've kind of been talking about over the course of this conversation. Um, you, you know, tying in the sort of like class conflict within a family, tying in themes of. Um, of childbirth and pregnancy, um, tying in like like um, like like tensions that go unspoken until there's this like huge climactic scene where these characters who you've who are like deeply flawed but who you've grown to love over the course of the movie just all sort of like 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 crash against each other in this like gorgeously acted cathartic moment. Um, you have an, a, a wonderful performance from Marianne Jean-Baptiste, um, who you really don't get to see in enough movies. I mean, she's great in In Fabric, but I, I mean, she's um, Hortense is like, she's just oh my god, she's so good. Um, yeah, she's one of those. She's one of those uh, characters who um, has their shit together. Yes. in a way that yes. like he stands out, and you're like in a Mike Lee movie, and you go. Oh, I mean, obviously yeah. she's dealing with a question of parentage or whatever. But yeah, like, yeah, but yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right. It's just this great balance between between yeah, someone who really has it together, but also is dealing with this like 
with this like really deep like existential question of identity because she's finding out who her birth mother is and then learning it's Brenda Blevin who's also giving this like career defining performance of you know someone who like yeah probably has some some mental health you know issues that aren't that aren't being attended to um, and she's, I, I, I mean, what, seeing Leslie Manville in another year absolutely made me think of Brenda Blethyn's performance in Secrets and Lies, where oh, it's yeah. like, yeah, I can she's see just that. this woman who is like so desperate to be loved. And, but it's, it's in this way where it's like your heart just, just breaks for her. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, and again, just sort of like like tying in um, profession as a way of of highlighting sort of the movie's theme, and you have Timothy Spall as this portrait photographer, um, and and you kind of see, I mean, I mean, I mean, and you also kind of see that a bit in um, in All or Nothing, where where he plays a, a taxi cab driver, right? Um, and and you kind of get these like these like momentary flashes of like his patrons um, in both of those movies, and you know, seeing seeing how he comes to life and like his form of emotional labor as this as this photographer in secrets and lies and, and these like beautiful little moments um you know and just kind of thinking about um like like how how photographs really tie in with like identity and personhood and like putting yourself forward like i mean i, I just think of like my experiences with getting with getting headshots done and how it's like you're trying to put all of yourself into one image and you know how that ties into like like the other character like especially Hortense, you know, and and her sort of struggles with with identity and and how that's changing, and also with um, with um, with Timothy Spall and I forget the actress who plays his wife because she's really good too. Um, but like like them trying to accept that they can't have children. Um, yeah, Secrets and Lies. It won the Palme d'Or. Like I don't I don't need to sell you on it. It's really- well, the, well, unfortunately, you kind of do because it's it's not it's very underseen because it's hard to find. I yeah. don't understand um, it at all. It was nominated for Best Picture. I know I, it's pro- it's just probably one of those rights things where some company wants too much money and some other company doesn't in on a position to re-release it or you know it's it's just probably one of those things. Uh, a little bird told me it might be getting Criterion release oh. uh, soon, so oh. that would be lovely. Uh, well, uh, uh, another little bird found it on eBay with Japanese subtitles. I sure so. did. I sure <laughs> did buy a bootleg from Korea with Japanese subtitles hard coded on there. You know, I saw uh, I saw this movie um, with my best bird at, at, a, at a movie theater. It was the Piper's Alley. Do you remember that theater, Patrick? Was the bird a piper? No, the, the Piper okay. Alley was the theater that was right by Second City, and it wasn't the greatest I, I, theater in the world. You may—I don't know I if you may have seen Devils and Rejects there. I can't. I, Devils yeah. and Rejects. That's the Mike Lee Rob Zombie movie. That's the next one I want to see. Well, nice callback to both of our first two episodes. Very good. Devils and Rejects. Uh, no, I think I, I might have seen Devils and Rejects. No, there. I saw. I, I saw this with with yeah with my with my best bird. And I don't know why I keep saying that, uh, but he we saw Swingers and Secrets and Lies back to back. Oh wow! Yeah, two completely different movies, <laughs> and I just remember him going, "This is nothing like the last movie we saw." And he, he was just <laughs> not into, he was just not into it at all because I think he he wanted a lot more uh, goofy, you know, Kevin Smith like comedy antics and you didn't get that in secrets and lies i sure did i i wound up loving this movie and was along with fargo sort of championing both of those around award season 
Someone yeah. asked me where they should start with Mike Lee, and I wanted to tell them Secrets and Lies, but unfortunately that would be kind of cruel, so I went yeah. with Life is Sweet. But Yeah, that's what um, I'd say. I do, like, when I was thinking about the movies and I was watching them, sometimes I think about, like, what like what I should recommend this to my parents? And that means, would I recommend this to someone who isn't particularly interested in art, but might enjoy a nice story about adults? Um and I find, like, Secrets and Lies in another year, I would recommend. Life is Sweet, probably not. Um, topsy-turvy, no, too long. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but like Secrets and Lies is actually a pretty good introductory Mike Lee movie, if you're listening and want to get into it and don't mind ordering bootlegs from Korea off of eBay. Yeah, well... <laughs> yeah, well, to wrap things up, I, 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 I really feel that Mike Lee has become... One of my favorite directors because I've yeah. either really liked or loved everything I've seen, and there's still a lot more to exp- explore, including that BBC box set I told you about. And sure. I, I just think his films are, are involving, intelligent, compassionate, and they can break your heart and make you cringe. So I, I think it, it just gets you feel more in touch with flawed humanity in a way that just I think speaks to me personally and as a fan of great acting you can't go wrong throughout pretty much every performance in all of his movies so yeah it's a there's a reason he's stuck with the process it yeah. works yeah exactly um, what, what would be our top three uh regina what are your top three? Oh god come back to me it's like ordering at a all restaurant right. so for me so for me it's number three is secrets and lies number two is another year and number one is life is sweet okay for me number three uh-oh naked number two life is sweet and number one another year oh shit i forgot that this was part of the podcast um and remember if you say the wrong one you blow up oh no um in no particular order i'm gonna say secrets and lies topsy-turvy and i think i came around to happy-go-lucky Order, oh. order, order. No, I didn't. Happy Go Lucky is interesting. We didn't really talk much about no, Happy Go Lucky. No, we didn't. But I, I don't know. I was just like sitting here thinking about it, and I'm like, you yeah, know what? Happy Go Lucky. Happy Go Lucky is a fascinating movie. It yeah. is. I like thinking yeah. about Sally Hawkins. I think she's fantastic. Oh, she, yeah, she is. She's really good. She's great. You know, David Thewlis in Naked was an inspiration uh, for Greta Gerwig for the character of Francis in Francis Ha. Ooh, that was like her primary <laughs> character inspiration. No, not lying. It's pretty right. wild to think about. I mean, they both run in the streets at one point. Yeah, that's probably what she meant. <laughs> yeah, that's the only inspiration. Yeah, I just want to have a character that runs in the streets. Um, <laughs> wow, this was uh. We're hearkening back to the old length since we three and a half hours, but well, uh, we're going to cut some of this out because some of this is a gap where we took a break. Oh, that, that's true. But still, there was a lot to say about this incredible director. Yeah. And speaking of our incredible directors, our next episode we're planning to tentatively record during my birthday week. We'll see what happens in the world, but instead of doing the traditional goofy birthday present bonus episode, I just want to do a full out regular director's club on one of my favorite directors, Billy Wilder. Uh, do we gotta? Yeah, I think it's long overdue. Uh, 
Okay, I don't I don't know why I started it, so I can't get mad at you for continuing it, but it must stop. I want a wine too. <laughs> no, no, it's like the apartment. Oh no, it's it's like an it's like a sketch from seventies SNL. It's unfunny and eight minutes long. <laughs> and we're yeah. doing voices. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, there's a podcast out there called Dr. Game Show where you can hear all sorts of voices. Yay! Which I don't mind. Jim has gotten really into Dr. Game Show. You should have made that your recommendation for what we watched this week. It's just how into Dr. Game Show you've been getting. It's oh good, my clean gosh. fun. It is good, clean fun. Again, <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you don't mind puns. Yes! Yes, it's so good. I don't know. It's like every once in a while, like every 10 years, there's... There's uh, somebody who gets my sense of humor and just like uh, I'm I'm all in now now I have, now this is my new obsession. Um, so yeah, I I just want to say that I hope wherever you are in the world that you're safe and sound and healthy and content and hunkering down, hopefully in comfort. And if you're not, I I hope you can find a place to call home until all this blows over. Our, Thoughts and well wishes are with you and anyone dealing with this ridiculous virus, easily the worst virus of the decade so far. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I had to think about it. You're right. This is the worst virus of the decade. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll definitely do a bonus episode on our top ten viruses. Um, <laughs> uh, my number one is Cyrus the Virus from Con Air. Oh, good. Yeah, good John one. Malkovich is so dreamy. I like the um, I like the movie and, virus with Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, that's a good virus. Uh, what what? It, hey, hey, Jim. Where can people find you, Jim? Oh, I don't know. There's some. I'm somewhere. I'm at directorsclubpodcast.com and at Letterboxd and Twitter. I'm now playing Jim. It's true. Cool. You can find me just on the streets yelling at Scotsman. Yeah, you're just yelling Maggie over and over again. Yeah. Um, no, I'm you're on on, you're, yeah, you're on Letterbox, and you also and I'm doing Tracks of the Damned. You should listen to Tracks of the Damned. Yeah, and you just put out a new short film. Oh, that's right. You you put out a you helped me make a short film. Yeah, it was I, fun. Uh, I got a I got a camera and mic, and I was like trying to te- teach myself how to use it. So I shot a film uh, with just myself as the cast and crew. Um. And that can be found on my Vimeo, but I don't have the link to that. So I'll put it in the show notes. And the only question I had is, how were your neighbors? Were your neighbors okay with you screaming "Radio on" over and over again? Did, like, I did it. I mean, you have to understand. This is a long time ago. At some point, there used to be during weekdays, people would be at work. Ah, okay. That's, and you that's could, true. That's and, true. And you had sort of the apartment building to yourself. Um, this is a long time ago when I was young and made that film. Uh, so right. when I was uh, singing along to the Modern Lovers in the film, uh, I was singing along just to myself. Uh, okay, well, it was it was well done, and uh, thank you for thank you both for being on the show today. Yeah. yeah, thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Are you on the social medias at all, Regina? Ooh, kinda. Um, I am on Letterboxd. Um, Panda Bear Shape is my username. Um, if anyone out there is on Mastodon, um, I'm at Tesseract at BigShoulders.City. Um, if you want to check out my blog about fat characters in cinema, it's uh, PandaBearShape.com. 
Um, if you're interested in the Chicago theater scene, um, my theater company is the agency. Um, you can follow us on various social media. Uh, we are the agency is the uh, is the handle. Um, we're doing some some online stuff. Right now, we have um, some short performances coming up on uh, April 24th as part of our monthly new work series called The Basement Series. Um, so if you're interested in um, some seeing some uh, experimental short theater on Zoom, um, check us out. That's great. I would definitely Hell be yeah. up for that. Thank you. Um, yeah, there's a, there's been a lot of enjoyable concert streaming like on Instagram and places. I'm just like, oh, cool. I get to watch one of my favorite songwriters just play some songs in their living room for a bit. It's pretty cool. Yeah, so that, that has been one, that. one of the one of the uh, rare upsides of, of all this chaos is seeing more accessible free art online. So Definitely. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Be safe. Be kind. Be thankful. Be you. I guess. Uh, and we'll wash see your it. hands. Yes, d- definitely wash your hands and, uh, and and sneeze into your elbow or whatever people are doing. You know, the new craze. Uh, yeah, just be, be good and be safe. We'll see you in a month for Billy Wilder. Goodbye. Goodbye.